I thought this would be a magic elf on my computer, and it's not, and I'm sad. This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my friend and yours, host of this show, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, November 9th, 2012. This is episode number 93. We'd like to say thank you very, very much to our sponsors, MailChimp.com, Squarespace.com, Hover.com, and Symbolicons, family of simple, precise, and awesome vector icons. These are designed by Jory Raphael. He's the guy that does all the cool artwork here for the shows at 5x5. These are very, very cool glyphs. They're vector-based. You can size them up and down as you need. They're pixel-perfect. They're retina-ready. Really awesome icons. We use some of them on 5x5. You can see them here and there, but they're very distinctive, very, very nice. There's over a thousand icons available. Go check them out at symbolicons.com. And if you use the code Dan Loves Icons at the end of the checkout, you will get 15% off your order. Go check them out, symbolicons.com. We also want to mention the bandwidth for November is brought to you by MyNode, an intuitive mind mapping app for Mac and iOS all month long. Brainstorming for your next project, organizing your life, planning vacation, doesn't matter. Check out MyNode. You've even got integrated iCloud sharing. You have your maps with you wherever you go. MyNode.com. How are you doing uh, today, John Syracuse? A little warm today, believe it or not. No kidding. Warm is meaning uh, over 40, 40 degrees Fahrenheit? It's in the 50s. What? And it's sunny. Yeah. Wow, that is very warm, unseasonably. Yep. No, I forgot to close the door in here. No, it's closed. All right. That just means we won't hear your AC, but we might still hear your lawn. Do they, they don't have to do the lawn. <laughs> my first. what? My, my AC? Don't you have an no. AC that runs in there? Oh, I do have. Yes, I do. I have like a window unit, but no, we don't need that on for 50 degrees. Okay. All right. Another uh, variety show today. Oh, I love those. Yeah. Considering you were out Syracuse last week by Marco, this week you've got to have a strong I comeback. was out what by Marco? Out. I'll never be out Syracuse by Marco. That's what? like by definition impossible. <laughs> okay. I mean, his name's not even Syracuse. No. Yeah. All right. I'll start with some follow-up. This first one is from uh, Michael Camilleri? Camilleri? That's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with Camilleri. Uh, this is about the exec- executive reshuffle that was sort of the main topic of the last show. The executive reshuffle at Apple, Scott Forstall out, uh, Bob Mansfield elevated role, and all the other executives' responsibilities reshuffled. Uh, and I was talking about early on how if you're a fancy pants executive, like once you reach a certain level within a company, they don't they don't fire you the same way as they would if you were below whatever that invisible line is. Like, you know, they never say that you're fired. You you get to sort of go out with your dignity intact and they give a, a vague press release like, oh, you know, he'll be leaving the company and blah, blah, blah. You know, whereas if you're just below that line, they just fire you and you're out and they call it a firing and, and that's that. Right. Uh, and so he offered some reasons for why this might be beyond the obvious, like, once you're sort of in with the in crowd, there's a certain minimum level of, of respect you get as a important, powerful, rich person and all that other stuff. Uh, he works for a law firm in Australia. So obviously their laws are different in Australia than the United States, but uh, he thinks there's enough similarities that his insight is worthwhile. Uh, and what he does is uh, prepare 
employment contracts uh, occasionally at the executive level, he says. So he's got some direct knowledge of this, at least in Australia. And what he says is that executive level contracts typically have a gardening leave provision. Uh, and gardening leave, I, I, I thought this might have been a made-up term, but no, it's right there on Wikipedia, gardening leave. I put the link in the show notes. Uh, that allows the company to continue employing an executive but prevents the employee from coming into the office. So like, you're still working for us, but don't come in. Seriously, you're not allowed to come in. Uh, and you still get your salary uh, and so on and so forth, but you're otherwise cut off from the company. Uh, and uh, Michael says, you typically want to do this with fired executives because they will have detailed knowledge about the plans of the company, at least up until the point of firing. And the longer the executive is on gardening leave, the staler this knowledge becomes and less useful it is to a competitor. Uh, so they say gardening leave provisions are usually included in addition to employment restraints to seek uh, to, that seek to restrict an executive from going to work for a competitor, confidentiality agreements and, you know, non-competes and stuff like that. But those can be very difficult to enforce, particularly in California, which has... Uh, very uh, lenient laws about non-competes. I don't think they're valid at all in California. Uh, so that's, that would be one reason why, I mean, that, that we'll find out if this is the case. We'll see how long Scott Forrestal is at Apple. If they, if he's on gardening leave, that means he'll be with the company for a long time. And they're basically keeping him trapped there, uh, you know, as part of a provision provision of his executive contract it says, you know, we can fire you basically make you not come in anymore and then let you stew while still paying you. You don't have to do any work. You just can't come in and learn anything. So that by the time you do go on the free market, maybe you don't know about what our super secret plans are, or you know. And never mind that he, you know, the laws are probably valid laws restricting. all. you can't tell. He can't go to another company and say, "Let me tell you what Apple's planning in the next two years," because I know, like, that's surely against the law. But you know how these things are. Like, you can't tell them, but you can go to another company and say, "I think we should really do this." Does that have anything to do with Apple? No, nothing to do with Apple. I just think it would be a good idea if you entered this market or didn't enter, you know what I mean? Uh, so gardening leave is a good way to protect against that. Again, we have no knowledge of whether such a clause exists in Scott Forstall's executive uh, thing. The only information being offered here is that this is a thing. And I guess we'll see. Like you said, New Year's Day, you know, Scott Forstall's out on the street with his cardboard box and he's walking out of the building. And <laughs> right. Getting into his Ferrari with a really sad face and <laughs> driving to his palatial mountain home yeah. and just being depressed. But if we see that like he's not on the free market, like, you know, he doesn't go any, we don't see like, Oh, Scott Forstall. Now that he does work for Apple. He's, you know, hanging out at the cafe or he goes to work, but you know, then, then we'll, it could be that he's on gardening leave. Uh, and the next point he has is the reason why a company rarely, if ever admit that an executive was fired. He says, uh, he doesn't know, again, doesn't know enough about California law to be sure, but his guess is that it has nothing to do with respect for the former employee and everything to do with fear of being sued. Uh, a statement that a person was fired be con could be considered defamatory or libelous, uh, depending on what was said and the circumstances in which it was said. Uh, and, you know, he says this is true of any employee, but it's usually not such a big deal with junior level employees because they're less likely to have the resources to sue. Basically, meaning they're not rich and it costs a lot of money to sue anybody. And even if they did sue, it would be difficult for them to prove damages to their reputation because the peon employees don't have much of a reputation to be damaged. Those, these, both of these things kind of get back to the, yeah, because you're, when you're an important person, A, you're rich, and B, you know, you can make, you have enough money to sue, and you can say, well, everybody knows about this now, and it's a big deal, and, you know, you can't say I was fired, and all that other stuff. So, many, many reasons why top-level executives, well, the rich are different than us, as they say, Dan, uh, why they don't get fired, practical reasons, reasons that make sense, the gardening leave totally makes sense to me, uh, especially in a state like California where non-competes are uh, not powerful at all. Um, where are they powerful? 
I think Massachusetts has, I mean, I don't know. Like I've, I've had plenty of non-competes in my employee agreements and it's always like, they're there, but like, tell you, I've always heard they're not really like, they're not really enforceable. And yeah, California has explicit laws that says you can't have things called non-competes period. Right. Whereas every other state, uh, or at least every other state that I've worked in, they're like, uh, yeah, but if you actually tested this in the court of law, it, you know, they put wording in there that's much too strong and it would never hold up completely. But do you really want to find out? It's all, all one of those, I don't know what you would call it, but like, uh, things that exist that are, you know, agreements that exist because there's a power imbalance. Like you don't have the money to pursue this legally, even if you're hundred percent in the right kind of like patents, where if you are a little person trying to make a software startup and in doing so you unknowingly violate bazillion patents because it's impossible not to, you just don't have the resources to prove that, you, that these patents are invalid or to prove anything. So same thing with the non-compete, like, you know, if you had infinite money and you took all, the, you know, all these issues to court, you could win on every single one theoretically, but you don't have that kind of money or time. And so it's just used there as a, you know, as a cudgel to force you to do what the more powerful, richer corporation wants you to do. I've never tested any of the non-competes in, that I've signed over the years, and I don't want to test any of them, and nobody wants to test any of them. But it's nice that in California, that's one thing you don't have to worry about. They're just sort of putting the threat out there, saying, you know what, like, we don't really trust you, but we want you to work for us. So yeah, sign yeah. this document that, that'll make that's just for the lawyers. The lawyers yeah. make us give you this. And the things they say are crazy. Like some of the ones I've signed are like, you can't work in this industry for two years. Like, in, you know, what is this industry? Like, does that mean anything having to do with computers or just like, you know, I mean, really, they don't care if the piano employee goes off and works for someone else. They're not going to pursue you. You're, you're not going to, you know, it's, it's kind of silly and stupid. I wish they didn't exist at all. Uh, but, you know, if, if it's something the company lawyers can get away with doing, uh, like it's not illegal to make someone sign one, then they'll do that, you know. And you can just refuse and see if they will you still hire me if I refuse, depending on the company. Maybe they'll still hire you. Maybe they won't. You know, you got to be standing on firm ground to do that. Yeah, you just, you know, you, you just make your choice. Like, is it important enough for me to not get this job that, you know, because that's a, that's a, you know, that's a very likely outcome depending on the company. Then just, you know, make your stand. And that's another criteria you have to use for finding employment. But if you're an executive, like, I, I think I would sign the thing with a gardening leave because that's like hey you pay me my humongous salary and i don't have to come into work it's like paid vacation for rich people because you, you know who needs paid vacation it's rich people right all right uh they need so, more than more than we do thanks to michael for australia for that insight and the the fun term gardening leave which i'd never heard before i wonder if scott will do some gardening uh the next next bit from j andrew yang all one word i don't think i ever found his real name uh from but I bet it's J. Andrew Yang uh, from Twitter about the iMac. And I can't, couldn't remember if I had corrected myself uh, on this in any of the past shows. So I looked through the, the notes and I didn't see it. So forgive me if this is double follow-up, but uh, you might, you, maybe you'll remember. Okay. We talked about the iMac and I said like, oh, they're just using laptop parts and slapping it on the back. Did I correct myself about that already? I don't think, I don't think you, you did make a comment about it, but. Uh, well, what I'll what put, is there to correct? That's true. I'll do I'll do it quickly again. Like they they use desktop CPUs in in the IMAX. They're not laptop CPUs. Uh, they do tend to use mobile GPUs, but that has been uh, true and not true at various points. But the point is, it's not Mac Pro stuff back there. It's not Xeons. It's not RAM with ECC. It's not. You know, this was in the context of can an IMAX replace uh, a Mac Pro for some people, uh, and certainly the GPUs have not been like 
gigantic double width full length PCI, you know, those top of the line GPUs. Uh, so my points about it stand, but I incorrectly said that it was completely laptop parts back there. It's, you know, CPUs and storage, usually desktop, and then the graphics and sometimes the optical drives as well because they're skinnier are laptop parts. When, uh, when do you think the distinction between laptop parts and desktop parts, not talking just CPUs, but when do you think that distinction will be blurred away so that we won't have to talk about it anymore? I don't know if ever because, like, it, you know, if you say, oh, anything anybody needs can always be, uh, you know, laptops are all anybody needs, so why would anyone make a desktop thing? Well, if you have a bigger power budget you and, and more physical space, you can make a more capable thing. Like, that will always be true, no matter how the technology advances. And I don't think we're anywhere near the point where a more capable, more powerful thing is not incrementally more useful than a less powerful thing, right? So I think whether the terms we use to describe it are the same, the, the distinction between you know something you can fit in your pocket, something you can carry in one hand, something you can carry two hands, and something that's plugged into the wall, those distinctions will continue to exist or something that is sometimes plugged in, you know, that continuum will continue to exist. So I, I don't think it's going away. Okay. Uh, next bit is from Jared Williams, who gives us gave us the definitive link on the available disk space in the Microsoft Surface. This is from Microsoft.com itself. He sent it, I think, by email. No, it by by Twitter. And then that same day, I saw it linked around all over the web. So this is kind of old news, but I just put it in the show notes for completeness. Microsoft.com's page it says, "This phrasing is so weird on this. How much hard disk space do you have available on your Surface? Hard disk space." Like, that's just the term they use. I can I kind of understand because I try to explain to my parents <laughs> about, you know, I get them like a, you know, the, you got a, uh, a 32 gigabyte iPod touch. What does that 32 gigabytes mean? And I have to, to make them understand, I have to say that's like your hard drive, like to distinguish it from RAM. Uh, and no matter how much I explain this, I think I've talked about this before. My mother in particular was obsessed with the idea that by deleting applications, it would allow like a, she, she had a, an old iPod touch and modern games were like crashing on launch on it. They're probably being killed by the low memory killer because there just wasn't enough memory to support these things. Or maybe they were just buggy or whatever. I said, the problem is you don't have enough memory. And she would say, oh, I can fix that by deleting some applications that I don't use. Never mind the fact that half of the, you know, 32 gigs were free anyway. I, and I tried to emphasize, no, it, like deleting things from your quote-unquote hard drive on your iPod Touch is not going to give you more RAM. Like, they're two separate things. <laughs> but they're both... The age-old confusion going back to the beginning of time. Yeah, and, like, at least we, before we had, like, well, one is the size of, you know, <laughs> one has, like, a big metal box with a spinning thing in it, and the other one is chips that don't move. Right. And now, so now they're, they're all, all chips that they're, don't They're move. all chips that don't move, and the distinction is <laughs> even fuzzier. So Microsoft refers to the store, the internal flash storage of... And now we use Flash, too. It's like, well, Flash is different than RAM because, you know, when you turn the power off, all your data doesn't leave Flash, but it does leave RAM. You know, all of these increasingly nuanced distinctions. So Microsoft just says, forget it. We're just calling it a hard disk. Hard disk space. It's it's, it's hard, I guess. There's no disk. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this page says the 32 gigabyte version has 16 gigabytes free hard disk space. And the 64 gig version has 45 gigabytes free. And then it does a more detailed breakdown. So this link is in the show notes right from the horse's mouth. Let's see what Microsoft has to say about the hard disk on your surface uh, and the other point that lots of surface fans and, and other uh, attentive people brought up is yeah the surface os and installed software might take up a lot of room uh more room than the equivalent if there is an equivalent uh thing on the ipad and ios devices do but the surface has an sd card slot 
So if you're like, oh, I bought the 16 gigabyte Surface, well, go buy yourself a 64 gigabyte SD card for like, you know, 50 bucks or whatever they cost. And you know, you've just given yourself more storage than any iOS device that you can buy at any price can ever have, right? It has a micro SDXC card slot. This is getting to be kind of like the, uh, the alphabet soup of resolutions. <laughs> it was like VGA. You, you might know some of these from your PC days. What's the, what's the most obscure letter combination for resolutions uh, that you know? Off the top of your head. I don't know any of them anymore. It's W-Q-X-U-B-G-A. Yeah. <laughs> like, they just go crazy. Anyway, so uh, SDXC is not getting that bad, but I had to look up what it meant. It's, uh, secure digital extended capacity. The X is for extended. Uh, and those cards go up to two terabytes in size. Wow. Well, you can buy a two terabyte SD card. And I don't think the service would support it anyway. Uh, and the, the SDHC, which is the other alphabet soup standard before that, stopped at 32 gigs. So, yeah, so you can get a 64 gig SD card and go nuts. That's the, the Microsoft way. Give you an SD card slot. And, that, and, you know, if you think about that, that would be nice to have on an iPad. Like everyone would get the 16 gig iPad uh, and buy the SD card. But it's not the Apple way because, you know, the Apple way is don't provide a device where a naive user can, while using the thing, yank out the SD card and not understand what that does to their machine. Like, what happens when you do that? Do half your apps go away? What gets put on the SD card versus anywhere? Is it, are you manually managing storage? Does it use it like a fusion drive in iOS? Like it's, yeah, probably you can imagine that that feature not coming to iOS devices, but it's on the surface. Uh, so that mitigates a lot of these space constraints. And really, I, well, I don't know. I say Microsoft should be pushing that harder, but I don't know how Microsoft Surface OS manages space either. Uh, so you wouldn't want to say, oh, you can manually manage where your stuff is by copying it to the SD card. And, you know, for as much uh, criticism as Apple received initially when they were doing, you know, things that essentially with iOS that essentially changed the model to say, yes, you have files, but don't don't worry about where these files are. You know, I think in a way, looking at these issues with the surface kind of say, well, this maybe is why. Well, you know, Microsoft obviously not taking that route. right, uh, but that makes like in some respects that it makes it gives the, like the SD card it gives the user of the Surface more control because they can say I want this over here and I want that over there and these are on this SD card and that's not all right. But on the other hand, Apple uh, Apple's the only one with the flexibility to later on say you know we now have holographic cube support and you plug in a holographic cube in the back of your iOS device and we transparently manage what stuff is stored on the holographic cube and how can we do that because you never had any control over where stuff was anyway. Right. We we always managed it right so we can make sure that like entire applications and all their data are over there so when you yank out the holographic cube that you know certain apps disappear in their entirety you're not left with like half of an app and missing files and stuff you know never allowing direct access to the files gives you the most future flexibility to how to manage storage whereas allowing access to managed files like microsoft does gives you the most current day uh practical flexibility for people who know how to manage that stuff uh, so i think apple is in the right here but uh, Microsoft's strategy has always been a contrast to Apple's strategy, you know, with that entire product and with their OS. So that's probably appropriate for them. Uh, some Fusion Drive stuff. I asked some questions about Fusion Drive and people answered on Twitter. This is, oh, I should practice his last name. Heinrich Wanheden. I'm killing that one. I'm sorry. I probably killed the first name too. Uh, maybe it's a V pronunciation because it's like German. Anyway, uh, I asked if you could... Uh, boot from a fusion drive uh you know some, he, people are making the fusion drives attached to like other random Macs. so he's like uh, 
Uh, he made a, a, a Fusion drive for his Mac Pro and booted from it. Works fine. Uh, and you can read and write the Fusion partitions. Uh, Ishkabittle, I-S-H-C-A-B-I-T-T-L-E, says that homebrew Fusion drives do support installation of OS X. Uh, he provided a link to Apple Fusion Drive on late 2010 MacBook Pro, someone's little diary of them taking their MacBook Pro, and they've got an SSD and a hard drive in there and did a Fusion Drive, and it boots just fine. Uh, so this you know, this appears to be... Uh, all these people are basically working in unsupported configurations, and I would not recommend this. But for people who want to give it a try, it seems you know everyone is having success. You know, whatever thing they can think of that they think might work, it's working for them. Uh, Alexander Torres uh, tweeted something in Spanish that I tried to translate with Google Translate, but it doesn't matter because the thing he tweeted is a picture of a dialogue that's in English, and it shows what happens if you have a Fusion drive and try looking at it connected to a Mac that is running something earlier than uh, OS X 10.8.2. And the dialog box is pretty good. So we were talking about before of how uh, Apple handled the transition to HFS Plus. And by the way, I, I had since looked up some of that stuff. Either I looked it up or had a, a better recall. Uh, when you connected an HFS Plus drive to a Mac that didn't understand that volume format that, you know, that with an OS that existed before HFS Plus, it would look like an HFS volume and it would have like a readme file. Like it was, it wasn't just (laughs) the readme file explained what the situation was. So the HFS plus drive masked itself as an H a tiny HFS volume with a single readme file that opened like teach text or whatever the current version of the Apple's text editor was. So yeah, that was, that was cute. Anyway, the dialog box for fusion drive says, uh, and this is in the show notes too, the disk use the disk instead of this disk. Maybe this is a weird translation. The disk uses a format that your current version of OS X does not support. To use this disk, a newer version of OS X is required. All your, all your files are still on the disk. So that's a pretty good error message. Like it, it doesn't just totally unrecognize it and say you want to initialize it. It recognizes it. There must have been enough even back in whatever version this is to say, uh, this isn't totally alien, but it doesn't work with this version. Maybe they have some version information in the thing or whatever. So it says, you know, it's not broken. You just need a newer version of OS X. And this is an older version saying that. So that's like the forward compatibility thing that I was trying to talk about before, where old software can make intelligent observations about things that didn't even exist when it was written based on, you know, some metadata or whatever, or just clever engineering. And the reassuring thing, all your files are still on the disk. Like your stuff's not gone. You just can't see it from here. Um, so that's a pretty good job on that message. Uh, Lee Hutchinson and ours has been doing a good job of uh, Breaking the stuff down, yeah. Yeah, learning more about Fusion Drive. He's got this big article, Achieving Fusion, uh, with a service training doc, ours tears open Apple's Fusion Drive. So he got like the Apple Store service manuals for like how to do stuff when people bring in their Macs that have Fusion Drive. How does he get, how does someone get that stuff? Leaks. That's it. So that's how it works. Okay. Someone who's an Apple Store employee or knows an Apple Store employee, you know, it, things get leaked. I mean, it's not groundbreaking it you know if you wanted to see what their service guides look like or what their instructions are it just tells you it's very you know here's how you work with someone who brings in a fusion drive and it's actually pretty complicated and like if you just gave someone those instructions who didn't know what they were doing you you know they wouldn't follow them right or would be confused by a certain point and like you know it, it, seeing how people in these stores are expected to follow these fairly complicated instructions and not screw them up uh that's not easy to do and of course, we all expect them to not screw up. I brought it to the Apple store and they destroyed everything. But, you know, anyway, uh, you can take a look at that article. It's in the, in the show notes. There's another one from Tom, who all lowercase, whose name I gave up trying to find. 
this is uh, BYOD Fusion. There's a couple of things with BYOD. I'm assuming it's for bring your own disc. He's got an article about his experiences with Fusion. And finally, there's someone from, something from Tripod Tech, T-R-Y-P-O-D-T-E-C-H, has a video on YouTube of do-it-yourself Fusion Drive. So basically, if you're interested in Fusion Drive and you have 1082, but you don't have one of those new Macs, there are many, many resources for you to go to to learn how to potentially destroy all your data, but also have a lot of fun. Uh, so I, I haven't tried any of these things. I've been content to watch other people's stuff and I, you know, I don't have a spare SSD to add to the mix or whatever, but like I said, I'm looking forward to using Fusion Drive and whatever next new Mac I buy in 2013. But for now, uh, it's not for me. But if you want to try it, many resources to do so. Want to do our first a, uh, sponsor? Yeah, that's it for follow-up. First sponsor squarespace.com everything you need to make an amazing website fully hosted completely managed you make uh, any kind of website we use them for like our news blogs things like that but you can make full-fledged websites that do tons and tons of things portfolios image galleries and what's cool is that you can decide within squarespace what you want to do with these sub pages you can give them the urls that you want to give them you can have a blog you can have a gallery you can have all of this stuff and it's super easy to create it there's a drag and drop interface that makes it super easy and i was messing around with some of the advanced settings in there because they're always improving stuff they're always changing things behind the scenes and they don't always i mean I'm, I'm sure you could read their like you know developer notes and things like that but i noticed the other day that they have now a, a, and i don't know how long they've had it maybe they've had it for a while but i just saw it they have like a default preference that says when you create a new post, when you start typing something new, do you want to use their cool WYSIWYG editor? Well, it's pretty cool, but you know what? Me? No, I don't want to use that. I want to default to Markdown. Well, that's a built-in preference. All of these little things, they've thought about all of this stuff. They have built-in, you know, if you view the source on a site, it's clean. All the templates that they have are responsive so that you can look at it on an iOS device and you see a really nice version of the site, not one of those garbage mobile versions of sites. Uh... You know, they, they've got uh, SEO built in, image versioning, retina ready stuff. Everything's integrated. Depending on how long you sign up for, if you, I mean, first of all, listen, it's not free. You're going to spend 10 bucks a month. You want their unlimited plan, you're going to spend 20 bucks a month. If you sign up for a year, you get 20% off. If you sign up for two years, you get 25% off. And either of those, you'll get a free domain name registration with it. Or you can just use your own. No credit card, nothing like that. You go to squarespace.com slash five by five. That is the best way to support the show, to get started with Squarespace and all of that stuff. Squarespace.com slash five by five. When you're there, you use the code Dan sent me 11 because this is the 11th month. Dan sent me 11. You get 10% off whatever you sign up for. So go check them out, squarespace.com. I'm getting uh, direct messages on Twitter, but I, people need to tell me whether the things they're direct messaging me about the show that they're currently listening to can be spoken about on the show and lack of, with lack of any knowledge, I can't just can't talk about it. So thanks for sending me live feedback. Please tell me whether I can convey the live feedback to the listeners. Otherwise I won't. Maybe they could use a little, like a capital Y or capital N to make that determination. Always do it as a preface. That's my tip for when providing information to somebody, uh, either that you do or don't want them to make public Start, start with, with the, that. Start with the what I'm about to tell you should or shouldn't be blah, 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 and then tell it. Don't do the reverse because then they read it and then quickly, you know, especially when you're talking to somebody who's on the air live. What if I just read it off, you know, in my excitement? Right. Anyway, uh, 
topics today. I don't know how many we'll get to. It depends on how long they go. Uh, I have a lot of them and the notes get longer as the topics go on, but who knows? So we'll just maybe maybe we'll cut it off after a couple of topics go by and decide that that's it because we've had a lot of long shows lately. Uh, I don't know what this one's going to be. We'll see. So the first thing I wanted to talk about uh, is usually the third rail for tech podcasts is to talk about anything having related to politics. I'm not going to actually talk about politics. I'm going to talk a little bit about tech, just a tiny little bit, uh, specifically about voting technology. I assume you voted in the uh, presidential election. Everybody's uh, should exercise their right to vote. And whether I voted and how I voted is something that shall be a mystery whether you voted whether i voted and how i voted shall i'm gonna ask you how you voted but you're not even gonna say i do not discuss politics i did not discuss voting i did not discuss religion i will talk about buddhism as a philosophy with merlin Mann on the back to work show and those are the only two rules i have you can say i I will not say if i voted i will not say how i voted i will not say where i voted it's a rule i like it sam i I do not like it this is this is there are only two rules that i have and those are the two no, you have so many more than two rooms. No, not not when it comes to podcasting. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, so what I wanted to ask about, let's say you can draw on your past experience. If you've ever voted uh, This implies life, that I've ever voted. Oh, yes. No, that's too much. So anyway, uh, like voting technology, like how the mechanics of how people pick, you know, whoever. This is, this is the way it works. For those who have never voted in the United States, you, uh, you walk into a booth. There's a very large uh, lever or lever. And you, uh, you, you take a, a small mallet and you tap the end of a little stick to punch out a card through this block of a, wo- a hole through a block of wood. And uh, then you pull the lever and it, uh, the, the card falls straight down into a big, uh, you know, like open opening in the floor. There are many different things that people use to vote. And the thing you're talking about where you go in with a booth and there's a lever and stuff, I've yeah. never actually used one of those, but I remember seeing them when I was a kid, like in my elementary school when they would if, set up. If I have ever voted, I would have definitely used <laughs> one of those as well. And I, I, however, I will say that I have never, having no knowledge of the voting process because I cannot say if I've ever voted or not, I can say that I've never used a computer system to vote. Yeah. So uh, another common system uh, that I have used is kind of like these standardized testing things you take in school where there's like little bubbles and you fill them out. uh, Scantron. With with a pencil or pen. Yeah. Scantron. Optical scanning. A bunch of empty circles. And if you fill one of them with darkness, then you send it through a machine. It finds the one little circle that is filled in with darkness because it's less reflective than the ones that weren't because the paper is white. And that's how it registers your votes. That's what I had this year. I did vote. And uh, they gave you, I complained on Twitter that they gave us little pens, like Sharpie markers to fill it in, Weird. like to fill in the bubbles. And then it bled through to the other side. Like you'd, you'd fill in the little thing. Not like I'm not going crazy, like trying to make it the darkest circle, just, you know, minimal filling in of the circle so that, you know, and then it bleeds through the other side. I don't think it's an issue because the other side where it bled through is not an area that would be scanned. Like it's not, that's not where the answers were on the other side, but that's, that's just sloppy. Uh, there were some videos put of touchscreen voting machines where someone would tap one choice and the other choice would get selected. Of course, partisan political people are like, aha, that's because party X is sabotaging the machines. But the problem worked in both directions. They're, you know, tried to vote for candidate A and B was selected. And then other touchscreen voting machines tried to vote for candidate B and A was selected. Uh, So that's that's obviously it's either the worst kind of uh, political hacking or it's just, you know, bugs in the system. 
Of course, we had the butterfly ballots where it was hard to even t- in Florida from 2000, where it was hard to even tell who you were voting for. Like just bad UI. Just, you know, there's lots of articles around 2000 about the user interface of voting and how like hanging chads. Know, it, it should. Yeah. The, the hanging chads of punching out paper like it should. You know, the, the qualities of a good voting system, technologically speaking, are pretty clear. Like the person voting has to know who the heck they're voting for. They shouldn't have to puzzle over this thing. Like it shouldn't be like, well, most people figured it out, but some people will be confused like they're. It's kind of like connectors. Like if it's your job to design connectors, there's certain criteria for it. If it's your job to design voting technology there, I mean, I don't think it would be rocket science for us to come up with criteria. I should know who I'm voting for. It should be clear who I'm voting for. It should be easy to count in an automated manner. You know, all these other qualities about it. And yet the voting technology that we're all using and it changes because like these things are controlled, I guess, by the states or the counties or whatever. There's no like big federally mandated. This is how we vote in the United States. Well, everyone's using different machines, you know, filling in bubbles and things, pulling levers, punching things out, using various touchscreen electronic voting devices and stuff. And over the years, there have been stories in the tech press about these electronic voting machines and how incredibly terrible they are. Like, you know, they're, they get government contracts because of their connections with, with the government, but the machines themselves are terrible. They're not secure. They're buggy. They're not easy to understand. Like most people say, oh, you know, those electronic voting machines are terrible. We should stick to the tried and true technologies like the lever and the, and the pencil things right. and filling in the bubbles because those are and, and in most respects, they're true. The, the electronic things are worse in almost all possible ways than the old ones. But that doesn't mean that uh, better voting technology is impossible. And so I continue to be frustrated every every time there's an election at the dismal state of the technology used for voting, mostly because. This is like this is a problem that we know we meaning like humanity humanity knows how to solve. Right. Uh, We have the mathematics and the technology to make something that fulfills all the criteria that a rational person would lay out for for voting. User interface is still a little bit hard because that's not as more a little bit of art more than science in there. But it's testable. Like find out if this ballot is clear to everyone who's using it and just make it until it's like super duper extremely clear. Uh, so the technologies I'm talking about, there's actually a Wikipedia entry on like this as a concept, not even just specific things. Uh, the page I linked is end-to-end auditable voting systems, uh, which it's kind of like sounds like end-to-end data in Trigonometry ZFS. But uh, this particular property that you can, this is something you can do with electronic voting systems that you can't do or can't do as easily with a paper type system. And so their definition is end-to-end uh, auditable voting systems are voting systems with stringent integrity properties integrity properties, and strong tamper resistance. And they often employ cryptographic methods to craft receipts that allow voters to verify that their votes were not modified without revealing which candidates they voted for. Uh, so that's basically, I don't get into the math most because I don't understand it myself, but it's kind of like public key cryptography where with with a system like this, Every aspect of it can and should be completely open, completely open source. The implementation is completely open. Everything about it is like everybody come look at it. There's no secret black box where you can't see behind. You can see how this thing works. Anybody can make a machine that that, that worked in this way. Uh, and we can mathematically prove you can mathematically prove to yourself that your vote was counted, that it wasn't changed. And no one else can tell who you voted for. Right. So, like, it gives you all the benefits of, you know, anonymous voting and stuff like that or whatever. But, but you know, with a mathematically secure system that if anybody tampers with it, you'll know. And any citizen, if they have any doubt that their vote was not counted or was changed incorrectly, can verify it to themselves in a way that that verification couldn't be faked without, you know, access to you know, the, the ability to uh, 
find humongous prime factors beyond our current technological. And, <laughs> I, and obviously, like any any cryptographic system, would have to keep pace with technology because if we get like quantum computers, then all of a sudden our, our secure voting system is insecure because in theory, uh, you know, the U.S. government or could uh, use their NSA supercomputers to fake your authentication and make everyone think their votes counted when really they didn't, right? You have to keep up with it. But we totally have the technology to do this now, to make a voting system that does not stink, that is way better than all of the paper systems, and that is verifiable in ways that no current system can come close to matching. And also, we, we know we have the technology to make user interfaces that don't confuse people. Like, this isn't, we're, it's not like we're asking them to uh, fill out a, you know, a, a parts list for 747. You're just voting for, you know, this guy or that guy or that guy, this guy or that guy. You know, it's not, or, or gal. Uh, it's, it's not a, it's not a, uh, as far as UI problems go, this doesn't seem like rocket science to me. Uh, not that I'm saying you couldn't have a great, but you know, we, and in this country, we have people who understand this technology. We have, we even have government agencies who understand this technology, who understand cryptography, understand everything about it. Obviously you can't have the government make these things themselves for a variety of reasons, but, and you'd, maybe you don't want the federal government forcing you to do it, but this technology exists out there and you just don't see it anywhere. All you see are increasingly crappy electronic voting machines that make things worse and the old systems that are bad in their own ways. Uh, and the, uh, you know, so I'm frustrated by this mostly because it seems like whatever our system of government is here, whatever you want to call it, it makes it really, really hard to get from the things we have to the things we know we should be able to have. Like, wh- why is it that we can't, get, you know, change the voting machines? Is it because they're not federally controlled? Would it be worse if they were federally controlled? And it'd be like Minitel and we've got this, we'd be stuck with, you know, the lever machines forever. Uh, I keep picking on Minitel. Sorry, France people. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what the solution is. All I know is that it is insane to me that I went on election day and filled out a Scantron thing with a pen and that you may or may not have done something similar. No way to know what I did. No way to know. Yeah. So anyway, that, uh, the lever ones are cool though. That was disappointing to me. Like, it just seems like, you know, it, it's kind of like, kind of like all the other areas where, we all knew that we had the technology to sell music electronically and people were just dragging their feet, but at least that solved itself. Voting stuff, it's like, it's just never, you know, it's moving so slowly. How do every we every state is different. Every place you go is different. What they all want to do is different. The way that they tabulate the results is different. The way they count the results is different. The yeah. way they report the results is different. And it's, you know, it's complicated. It's complicated. You could even say that's a strength, the the crazy, the amazing technological biodiversity, if you want to call it that, of all these different things, because it makes more difficult for someone to systematically, you know, change the vote on a wide scale. If we had sort of a technological monoculture of like a government sanctioned, quote unquote, auditable and and verifiable voting system, if someone broke that, then they've, they've just broken the bank. I'm not even saying that you need to have some centralized thing. It's just that you would expect at least some of the individual Places that are, that are changing their voting system to an electronic form uh, would do it right. Like just somebody, anybody like, is it impossible to find the people who know how to do this for you and get like, it seems like, you know, I, the people who get these government contracts for these electronic voting machines, they do bad work. The electronic voting machines are bad. They're bad in obvious ways that anyone remotely skilled on the art can look at that and say, no, you're an idiot. This is wrong. Well, I don't even understand why you're doing this. And that's why e-voting, like that phrase e-voting, has such a bad rap because year after year, when anybody with a clue looks at any of these machines, they're like, this thing is a joke. It is the most incredibly hackable, insecure. It doesn't give us any of the benefits that we could be getting. I don't know what you guys are doing, but oh, I guess you got the government contract to do this. And it's, you know, corruption or incompetence or some combination of them. It's just depressing. 
this is yet another uh, opportunity, by the way, for nerds to make the world better. Again, not a partisan issue. Nerds, if you are a young nerd out there today listening to this show, <laughs> grow up and make better voting machines. Like when you make that something that you do with your life. It seems like a way that nerds can help our country. It, it you know, it's not partisan at all. It's not about any party. It's just about we have the technology to do good voting. Let's let's do it. I'm not say everyone has to vote from their cell phones, but like, you know, if you if you picture the future, like when you were a kid, like in the year 2000, we will all vote from our mobile communicators like on Star Trek. There's no reason we couldn't all vote from our cell phones uh, this year. We have the technology to do that. We're just so far from that in terms of, you know, actually getting that stuff implemented. You know, in a way, I mean, think about this. I'm gonna, let me tell you about something. Do you ever uh, do you ever do online banking? Do you trust that enough? You're a credit union guy, aren't you? I am a credit See, union See, I knew it. Uh, so here's the thing. Some of these banks have these apps out there where you can deposit a check without taking the check to the bank. Have you seen this? You take a picture of it, yeah. Right. And this is, so this is how this typically works. You, you take your, you take your check, you put it down on the desk. I'm assuming you still have to endorse the back. I did. I don't know. Uh, but you take a photo of the front of the check with all within the app, a photo of the back of the check, and then you enter in the amount and then this this goes away, and then usually a number of hours could be twelve, could be twenty four. Later, it shows up on your uh, on your online statement. You know, you can log in and see that it's there, and the deposit went through. And then I guess you're supposed to dispose of the checks after fourteen days or something. You've, you're aware of this. Yep. You I won't. You can't admit to whether you ever have or have not used it, uh, which I respect. I, I don't think we've ever used this. This to me. My guess is that a human being is looking at these photos, right? I don't know about that. Like, can't they just read like this? There's OCRable routing stuff on checks, right? There definitely is. I'm just wondering if a fo- if if the photograph is like I, I imagine there has to be a human at some stage because what if the photograph you take was in bad lighting? I intentionally took one of the one of the photos <laughs> in less than ideal lighting to see if it would throw it back. Or complain about it, or if I would get an email or something, nothing. It went through, and it was correct. I bet there's people looking at them, but like that—that that whole doesn't that strike you as a talk about skeuomorphism? I guess it's not quite the same thing. But like, <laughs> we're going to send you a piece of paper that says that you're going to get money, and if you show this piece of paper to your bank, then they'll take the money from my bank account and put it into yours, and so on and so forth. And now you take a picture of this piece of paper that we sent you in the mail, and then we'll look. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> right. The wire, we have wires connecting everybody. Can we just, you know, direct deposit is how I do most of my things. Because, like, why, you know, I, I like that. That seems more like the future than taking a picture of your check. But in the end, if you were to look at how banking technology looked, you would be similarly depressed about what are the actual security and checks and balances and how many things are in there that are just like, well, it's just tradition in the way it's been done and, like, Rules of decorum and manners are holding our financial system together no, that, rather that's than any exactly, security. That's exactly it. And when you think of the two sort of oldest systems in, in, in the world, here at least, you know, when it comes to I think of like voting and banking would be in that list of things that involve paper and trust. Yeah. And it's the whole thing about voting is it really there's so much trust that's involved in this process, which is something that is is our right and, and arguably our responsibility uh, on the one hand, and then banking, which is something that that that's equally as frightening, uh, and and there's so much trust involved. I mean, this is think about this. I was visiting South Korea. This is gosh, I don't know, eight years ago, ten years ago, something like that. And we were we were checking our our luggage, but they at the time they didn't have it. We were just walking with our luggage. A guy walked up, 
And uh, he looked at our tickets and he said, okay. And he took the, he took the luggage. I'm like, wait, like, don't I get a receipt for this? Is there no barcode? Is there, you know, nothing that I, and he's like, no, 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 it, it, it's fine. And he w- walked away with all of our luggage and our, uh, our handler over there, who was a retired colonel from the South Korean army, very distinguished position, uh, very fluent in English. He says, no, 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 it's, it's, it's fine. I'm like, like I, like I, like I, I get that you say it's fine. I appreciate that. Thank you. I feel like I want some kind of receipt for it. <laughs> He's, he just sort of laughed because this guy, the guy who took our luggage, you know, this is a young guy, the white gloves on the, it would be unthinkable for him to not get that luggage to us wherever it was going. Yeah. It would be dishonorable he might have to commit suicide if that happened. It was like, it was a, it was funny that I was even asking to these guys. It was funny that I was even asking about it. And here in the U S you got guys chucking uh, iPads around in the back of Walmart. You see that video? And it's so, it's like, it's so different. And yet there's still so much trust that to them, that was not an issue of trust. That was an issue of honor. And like, you don't question that, but here it's like, please count my vote. Please let me make this deposit that's legit and that I didn't really add an extra zero to the end of this thing on the check. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it feels very different here. And when you're in the, the Korean airport. No one said, you Karen, no one's going to take that here. Right. <laughs> no it was just gonna, weird. No one's going to get that one. I know. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the weird thing about that is that if he had handed you a piece of paper, that would have made you feel better. It, yes. In a weird way. Like, yeah, like, it's, it makes it legit. It's, it's, like, it's a receipt. That piece of paper, you can wave that in there all you want. If it's taking your bags, you can't, you know, the piece of paper is not going to make them come back. But, but I have a piece of paper. Oh, right. that's great. I have a piece of paper. Well, but you, know. you do, you admit you feel a little bit better if you've got something. Right. And that's what's but weird the, about these checks. Is, and that's what's weird about the voting. They don't give you a receipt when you vote. But the piece of paper <laughs> is the same. That piece of paper is what you needed to make you feel like it, you were in a, a trusting scenario that you're familiar with. Right. Uh, and the lack of the piece of paper, like it's just a difference in, in what, may, you know, what you're used to and what makes you feel better. So they said, oh, I don't need the piece of paper to feel safe. And you say, well, I need the piece of paper to feel safe. But right. both with and without the piece of paper, if that guy's taking your bags, they're gone. They're still you, gone. You know, little, right. It's just a question of what you expect. And that's the thing with e-voting is like, you know, the general sort of. Uh, resistance to change and, uh, the, uh, you know, Ludditism of like technology scares me and I don't trust it. And uh, like people are much more comfortable with like in-person corruption, like actual theft and uh, actual fraud and, you know, election workers doing bad things. Then, oh, no, the scary computer hackers are going to change all our votes. So Mickey Mouse is going to be president. Right. Like the systematic kind of stuff that you can do once things are connected with computers, like in, in, in a one individual is not empowered to, you know, change hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of votes. Like, I mean, even if like the guy who has the power to change every vote in California, he can't change the votes in Texas as easily because they're not connected and so on. But whereas one computer hacker, if everything's all connected or if it's, you know, the danger of computers is like, I don't trust that. Like, I'd rather have the little piece of paper, even though I know it's less secure than the computer things, because I don't understand computers. I don't know what hacking is. I don't know how it happens. I just know that it does. Once I got my credit card stolen online and I'll never trust electronic voting. And like, there's something to that, like uh, interconnected uh, electronics and networking does empower an individual actor to do more damage. That is definitely true. Uh, But it also that same technology also empowers us to have way more security than we ever had before. Right. Like, you know, this cryptographic systems with, you know, public algorithms and public keys, like there's still a private key somewhere. And what if someone gets that? And, you know, 
I, I don't know that the resistance to this is on so many different levels. It's on a gut level. It's on like, you know, not able to get our acts together level. But I, I just think even even within the realm of like not trying to make a cryptographically secure voting system for the entire country, just even on the level of doing a competent job of equaling or bettering Scantron, uh, we're not we're not able to do that as a society. It's sad. And, and the check thing that I think banking will move faster than voting. Like, no, Definitely. That, because you know, as even silly credit as unions. For your check is it's something like they did direct deposit, but they want it. They want it to be all more automatable and have less human interaction. And they also actually do want more security. And they're 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 empowered to change things within their bank more than it seems. We are all empowered to change our various voting systems. Yeah, change happens slowly. We'll say. Well, well let's reconvene. Uh, when we're 80 years old to see if voting technology has improved at all, yeah. or if we're still playing out freaking Scantrons. <laughs> Hover.com simplified domain management. You've probably registered a domain with a company that just wants to sell you stuff you're not interested into. Not so with Hover, John Syracuse. I know you registered domains sometimes. You can transfer your domains to Hover using their transfer valet service. This is very cool. Speaking of human beings behind the scenes, that's, that's what goes on here. When you use their transfer service, this valet service, it's free. It doesn't cost anything but the price you're already paying for the domain when you transfer it. A real live human being will oversee the process, which can be a very weird process. It's not the same with different registrars. It involves this weird I can email and all that stuff. They'll handle the whole thing for you. They'll make it super simple for you to use. It's the best thing ever. And I love their service. I love the folks behind the scenes here. They get a toll-free number. You can just call them and you can do it all Talk to a person if you don't want to use the computer or you can use a computer for everything. It's amazing what these computers can do. You type the domain that you want in the little search box. If it's available, click plus, you're done. Pay for it. You can use PayPal. You can use a credit card, whatever. If they don't find it, you can enter in. that They will suggest a whole bunch of different alternatives for you. They'll show you other domains that are similar and available. You can even like do the auction stuff through there. But it's super simple, elegant, clean. Check them out. Hover.com slash Dan sent me. You get 10% off. You can use that code Dan sent me for renewals. You can use it for their email hosting. You can use it if you're already a customer. Hover.com slash Dan sent me. Check it out. Did you see that someone tried to paste an SVG into the chat room and it's gone nuts? <laughs> Dwan, D-U-A-N. Daniel Dwan. He's a young man I, here in town. I, this is what I assume happened, and this happens to me a lot too. Is that in, in modern OS 10 and most desktop operating systems, when you select something in an application and you do, and you select copy, uh, <laughs> I guess I do it, see it now. Yeah, regardless of what actually happens, then like the idea is like, oh, I've copied this thing, and if you were looking at it and it looked like it was text, right? You think you just copied that text, but you may be surprised to find that when you paste that into an app, a text application that understands uh, different typefaces and colors, that it's reproduced exactly as it was when you copied it. So, like, if you copy something from a web page and paste it into text edit, and on the web page it was like pink. Comic Sans, it'll be pink Comic Sans, you know, 24 point in the thing. So it didn't just copy the text, it copied all the styling information as well. And the same goes for images where a lot of web browsers, when you copy, you think you're copying an image or even just copying the URL of an image or something like that. If you paste it into a text editor, you get the URL. But if you paste it into an application that claims to understand, for example, SVG, it will say, oh, uh, this recipient of the pasteboard data says that it understands SVG. So I will give it the SVG incarnation of this thing you copied. And I don't know if that's what actually happened, but it, 
it happens frequently to me when I copy like a link from an application. Right. I just want the text URL, but I try to paste it and it like beeps at me and says, oh, I don't understand links. Like, is it copied as like a bookmark link or something? And the application says, I can receive, you know, that type of format, but really it can't. Uh, so wh- what's on the pasteboard or the clipboard, depending on which uh, operating system you want to take the uh, terminology from, is usually sort of a uh, multiple incarnations or a promise to get multiple incarnations of a piece of data. And which one you end up getting depends on... Uh, what the recipient of that paste said it was willing to accept. So maybe Duan can fill us in on what, what the major malfunction was there. But he said yeah. he was just editing an SVG file. Yeah, maybe he just didn't know he had that on the clipboard and he thought he had something else and it was just plain text, so I don't know. <laughs> and Swilliam says, now we're going to get a few weeks of follow-up on your mistake. How <laughs> yeah, right he is. Yeah, I, yes, I know it wasn't deliberate. Huh? We, all, we all make mistakes. I've, I've done it many times. Pasted the wrong thing in the wrong place. All right, uh, one small one, and then I guess we'll the, the final larger topic for the day we'll do, and uh, maybe that won't last that long. But I, I have a humongous, not humongous, it's two equally large topics, and I don't think they're both going to fit in this show, so I'll save the second one. But first, the small topic. The small topic is Google Voice Search. Have you tried that out? I have tried it. I have also seen the video of the comparison, these quote-unquote side-by-side comparison between Google Voice Search and the built-in Siri, and uh, it... In my own experiments with it, it it does seem to mirror those expressed in this video that the guy took uh, running each on the iPhone 5. It it is faster, and I think it's I think it's better. And I put in the show notes a link to oh god I'm gonna have to trim the show notes because I'm telling trimming off that second topic. I have a million show notes on it. This is this is a feature request that you should put into the CMS. I'd like to be able to just move all those show notes to the next show. I know Instead I can, I mean, like, I can do, I can do that for you in like one line, but I would have to, you would have to uh, tell me direct, to do it. Never directly update the database in production. Have you learned nothing as a web developer? I always, I back the thing up nightly. So big deal. Oh uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Roll back. Yeah. The worst ones where you don't notice you did, you know, update without a where clause and it executed fine. And then six weeks later you go, why the heck is the title of every story the same? Hmm. All right. Uh, Anyway, this link in the show notes is uh, Gruber's take on this. Uh, a typical terse form. He's got a link to, I think it's the same movie that you saw. It was a Gizmodo. Uh, has the side-by-side thing. It is Gizmodo, yes. Yeah, and he links to it. And his, uh, you know, one line commentary on it is, how fast should Siri be? This fast. Right. Uh, anybody who has an iOS device with the microphone who hasn't tried the Google Voice search thing it's just it's just the google search app like it's not i don't think it's a separate app right it's just the google search app the little blue g in a square it's a free application uh when i heard everyone raving about this before i'd even seen the videos i downloaded onto my cruddy ipod touch previous generation uh not particularly fast it does have a microphone on it uh and i tried it out and uh you know i was shocked at how how much faster and better it feels than Siri on an iPhone 4S, like my wife's iPhone 4S. Yeah. And there's a couple of aspects to this, right? The first aspect is an area where Apple, where Apple should be a contender. And that is the area of make it feel fast. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be fast, but make it feel fast. And the reason Google Voice Search feels like, like not faster, but more responsive is because when you start talking, Stuff happens on the screen. Stuff happens immediately, that, and it shows. Way- it shows what you're saying. It shows that it's 
understanding you. And it's that instant visual feedback. And you know, Google's been, you know, you got to give Google credit. They get this concept. If you think about Gmail, you, you know, when you hit send in Gmail, it's not sent that fast. You know that. Anyone who knows about computers knows it's not sent that fast, but it instantaneously looks like it's been sent. And what does that do? That said, oh, good, you know, it's, it's been sent. Good. You're not sitting there waiting with a little spinner. It's sent. Now, of course, it's going into Gmail's massive queue. And it may take a minute before it actually sends. But it's that instantaneous visual response. And this is, this is the thing that strikes you if you just watch this video and even need to install the app. You get that instantaneous feedback that something is happening. Whereas with Siri, it's just a little swirling around microphone thing. You're like, huh, I wonder if it even heard me. Yeah, there's different levels of this. One is something happens. Like you always want to see something happens because then you, especially novice computers, you're just like, uh, did I do it? Is it is it doing something for me? Like you want to know something's happening. Uh, so that's the first level. And Siri mostly does that. Like once you start talking, something happens on the screen to let you know like the phone's not frozen. Like something is actually happening here, right? Uh, and the second level is something is happening that exactly reflects what it is that you're doing. So that like it's kind of like in Fantastic How when you type in something, you know, and, and it's like parsing your natural language of the date and you can see it gives you a little visual representation. Here I figured out that I think you said a month and here I think you're saying a day. Oh, you type something different and now I'm misinterpreting it this way. Or, or like Quicksilver, my, my favorite launcher, as I'm typing the first few letters, I'm looking at the icons changing. It's like, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one. And as soon as I've typed enough for it to get to the icon I want, my pinky hits return and I'm off, right? It's real-time visual feedback of how it is how it is understanding what you're doing. So not only are you sure that it isn't frozen, you are sure as you're talking that it's getting things right. Or if it's not getting things right, you know, you see in what way it's failing, right? Uh, part of the reason I think Apple currently doesn't do this in Siri is because they don't have on-phone recognition. Like it's it's packing everything up, sending, streaming it out to the server, and the server's figuring it out and sending you a response. Like it's offloading the processing. Uh, and we said when Siri was, was around, like, you know, it seems like there's enough horsepower on these handheld devices to do, you know, maybe not as fancy kind of recognition, but a new some recognition here on the phone. And Android does have on-phone recognition. Uh, but the second thing is, I have no idea if Google Voice is actually doing on-phone recognition. And why? Because Google has the server-side chops to make it so that, for all I know, it's sending the data as I speak in real time to one of their incredibly responsive, fast servers that's giving me a response in like 50 milliseconds or some insane low-lag you know, amount of time, and it's bouncing it back. Uh, that is, you know, two, two things there. One, Apple's decision not to do on-phone recognition, Google's decision to do so, at least on Android. And two, uh, uh, you know, Google's ability to make a server-side architecture that is just so much more responsive, available, reliable, high performance than anything Apple has been able to field. Uh, so Siri just takes longer to do stuff and feels, it feels even slower than it really is. Because if you look at the side-by-side -side videos, Siri sometimes gives better results than the Google thing because Google just doesn't have the same infrastructure and doesn't have a nice appearance for all their stuff. A lot of the, the Google stuff ends up doing a Google search and you end up getting the mobile Google images search, which sometimes is pretty good. But, you know, Siri is more likely to have custom tailored responses and stuff like that. But the, the responsiveness and how fast it feels is just, you know, it's, it's night and day. It really is. And that's, that's the thing that you can watch the video. But when you're sitting there trying to do this yourself and you just want an answer, like just give me an answer. Don't. And this is, this is something else that if you had to describe the user experience, people would say, well, isn't Siri more elegant? Well, no. The faster answer is more elegant for me. 
Like, give yeah, me, the, give me the answer I'm looking for right now. The, the most killer one in that video, I forget what the exact things. It was like how many pints in a quart or something. And you want the answer to that now. And Siri's like, looking it up for you. Okay. Right. All right. Here's your, no, stop talking. It it's seems like, like you're trying to move to, out, move yeah. out from space balls, you know, yeah. like just, just give me the friggin' answer. And Google was like, it was not only did it feel faster, it was faster. Yeah. Like it gives you, here's here's your answer. It's not a hard question, right? Google, Google's not, it's not like Watson and Jeopardy trying to figure out this. It's, you know, how many pints in a quarter, if we can figure out what you said, they were, this is the Google leveraging his, it's a Google calculator thing. This is something that people may not know about. I'm always amazed when people don't know about this, but for years and years and years now, if you type a unit conversion question or anything similar into a Google search box, it will do a search, yes, but it will also just give you the answer, you know. Yeah, and, and that's that's the coolest thing. And especially for little things like, you know, even even us geeks forget like how many megabytes, megabit conversion type things, all of that, any kind of conversion that you want to do from currency to weight to volume, you name it. Yeah. You just type that in and give, and it's like you said, it gives you the search, but it gives you the answer and it's fast. Right. And, and Siri has the same ability. I think it's using, it might be using Wolfram Alpha. It might, it might even be using Google for it. But the, the bottom line is that Google servers answer that question. And the answer comes up on your screen when Siri is still like handholding you and saying, I'm checking this out for you. How are you having a good day? Like, <laughs> don't converse with me, Siri. Just give me the answer immediately. And Google just crushes it. I don't know if they even went to their server for that. That's the whole thing with Google. Like that's, that's Google's dream is like, you shouldn't know whether I'm doing this all locally. Am I doing recondition locally? Do I have all the unit conversion logic locally? Or am I just talking to a server that's close to you that has a low ping and talking to one of our amazing web services written in God knows what C++ optimized thing that gives responses in under hundred milliseconds. And Apple's like, da di da yeah, maybe make a connection to this web service and send this stuff. And see, it's just the the kind of sort of again end to end the kind of end to end discipline required to make any kind of server side thing that responsive uh, is like a company wide effort. You can't tack that on. You can't change it after the fact. It needs to be put in through and through. Now I still think Siri is a better way to do voice stuff on your phone because from what what I've seen, people who do use Siri they use it for things that Google Voice can't do, like you know setting timers and you know uh, interacting with the phone and actually modifying the plumbing of iOS and eventually maybe, you know, cooking it up to applications and stuff. Whereas the Google thing is mostly just a fancy way to use Google's existing web services and searches. Uh, but really, I don't think we should have to choose between those two. Uh, this is an example of Google once again flexing its muscles and showing its strength and once again making me feel bad about the fact that Apple feels like it needs to do everything and it's, you know just not good at that server side part. And on this end, it's also getting creamed in the client side experience for both technical and cultural reasons. Yeah. So like Ruber said, how fast should it be this fast or it should feel this fast or it should be this good. You know, it's just better. Chop, chop Apple. I mean, and do you think that they'll be changing something in response to this? Do you think that they will ever do? And again, listen, I like when I when I'm saying something to this Google search and it just shows the words that little thing that it hears you and it's making sense of what you're saying right now and it's really accurate. I doubt we'll ever see that in Siri because Apple's whole thing and if you think about these commercials that they've done with Siri. Siri's supposed to be like your friend, it's supposed to be like a little person, it's the little uh secretary inside your phone or whatever. It's not supposed to be the robotic and Google search is very robotic. It looks like there is 
I am a computer. I hear what you say. Here are the words to prove it. You know, instead, Siri's like, I'm listening to you. Hmm. Here's what you're looking for. It, it, would you be content, John, if Siri just got really accurate and really fast and never gave you this kind of feedback? Well, like I said, when we first talked about Siri, Siri is trying to provide the illusion of a system that's better than anything we can actually make now. The right. commercials make it seem like, you know, like like artificial intelligence or like something close to it or like you're talking to another human being. Whereas the Google implementation is more honest, it, it more correctly reflects the actual limitations of the thing uh, in real time. And I don't know if this happens for non-tech savvy people. Maybe it does. Maybe this non-tech savvy people just bail on Siri. But like there's that uncomfortable period of time after you use Siri, especially if you're like trying to demonstrate it to somebody where you're like, I wonder if it understood anything that I said or if it's going to show me egg freckles now. Right. <laughs> like that that time period when you're waiting, you're just like you all you want to see is like, Siri, what do you think I said? And, the, the you know, three milliseconds between the time you finish saying what you're going to say and the time what it thinks you said appears on the screen. And like the worst is like when when what it thinks you said appears on the screen and it's egg freckles and you're like oh god and then, and just still goes through like looking up egg freckles for you here you go and you're like oh no you, you know as soon as you see what it thinks you said that it's wrong right and yet you have to endure the poor little spinny thing going off and doing some web service request to give you some bogus answers or offer to do a Google search or something whereas with the real time feedback that time where you're wondering with your fingers crossed come on Siri understand what the hell I said is eliminated because you see it in real time as you're looking at it now. Again, with the voice stuff, like part of the whole idea of Siri is you're not staring at your screen. Like if you could stare at your screen, why would you be using voice control? It's like so you can pick up the phone and say, uh, you know, remind me to call Sue tomorrow and put it down without looking at it. Right. Again, that's what the promise of Siri is to do that. And it does do that pretty well. But uh, for just general voice control, when you can look at the phone, Google's implementation is, you know, it's it's like Johnny Ive. It's more true to to what it is than the Siri one. Siri is aspirational uh, with all that entails. And when it falls down, you're like, I thought this would be a magic elf on my computer and it's not, and I'm sad. Whereas Google is more straightforward. Like, it is what it is. You can see what it's doing. It works. It doesn't. Uh, yeah. I, it, it has less of a potential to make people disappointed that it's not magical like in the commercial. Because if, if they did a commercial for Google Voice, and for all I know they are doing it because I don't see commercials anymore, but if they did a commercial and they showed someone talking into it, they wouldn't have to put that little disclaimer that says like sequence is shortened or whatever. Maybe they would if it, if it did a long uh, Google query, but I think they could get away with doing it in actual real time. Like, no, we're not making this up. No sequence is shortened. This is how fast it actually is. Like try it for yourself. People out there listening, even on a cruddy iOS device, it is shockingly responsive. You wouldn't have thought that your phone or thing was able to do this. Like it's more response. This is what's sad to me. It's more responsive than Dragon Dictate 3 running on my like Mac Pro with 16 gigs of RAM. You know, like <laughs> I have tremendous computing horsepower and like a fiber optic connection to the Internet. And when I do real time talking and Dragon Dictate, yeah, it, it comes out. But there's more of a lag. I mean, again, because Dragon Dictate is doing much more thinking than this thing is. And its recognition is way better than anything on a phone will ever be. But it does take longer for the first few words. You know, when I speak a sentence to come out, often I speak the entire sentence and nothing appears on my screen until I get to the period and then the whole sentence appears, right? Because it's really thinking very hard about what the heck OS ten means and how you type that out. And yeah. again, to Dragon Dictate's credit, it gets that stuff right. Like, that's why it costs hundred whatever dollars. And I trained it in all my old I, uh, OS ten reviews. And so now when I speak a crazy sentence full of jargon, it gets a right capitalization and all. Uh, but talking into my little phone thing, the words appear faster. So good job, Google. Bad job, Apple. 
I, I, people gave but me we some have flag. it. We have it on our iPhones. So, yeah, I guess like, the only thing you know, if if I bet that there's tons of people out there who say, "Wow, I really I like this better than Siri." I wish I could map this to double tapping them, you know, the home button or whatever. Um, you know, holding it, holding down the home button. I think I feel like people would would love to have the ability to map it to that, but you can't. Yeah, it's it's an open ecosystem, but not that open. Not that open. Uh, and this is like uh, people gave me flack on the past show when I was listing the things that could have contributed to Scott Forstall's downfall, the things that we can see, like when he was the guy in charge, uh, you know, the maps thing happened. And I also listed Siri among like the demerits, like Siri happened on his watch and it was, you know, his thing that he endorsed and people like, well, what are you talking about? Maps fine. Everyone knows there were some problems with map data and stuff like that. But Siri, like that wasn't that good. And I I listed it for a couple of reasons. First, I listed it because it was released it's beta and that's not an Apple-ish thing to do. They ship it when it's ready. So this is a change from the Apple way. And it's a change in terms of like, you know, Apple shipping everything when it's ready, ready is what gives it the reputation of like when Apple comes out with it, I know it's going to be good. It's not like when Google comes out with it, you're like, yeah, it's probably just a beta and it might just go away. Right. So it put a dent in that image that a- Apple had been so careful to maintain. And it's not just an image. It's like an actuality. Like uh, you, you build up trust in the consumer that when you ship something, it's going to do what you say it does. Right. And having to put the beta label is like, this one, not so much. Like, it might kind of do what we say it will do or whatever, but then you also back it with a giant ad campaign that doesn't really emphasize the beta aspect of it. Like, uh, I don't think Siri was a failure or bad or a bad idea or anything like that. I think it's probably a net positive, but it had more severe downsides than a typical Apple launch, right? Like, it wasn't just, like, benign or neutral. Like, it had parts of it that that caused backlash or that didn't work as described or that, you know, the, when the servers weren't working, you know, for those people who first got their phones, the early adopters, they did not have a good experience with Siri because the servers were constantly slammed because everyone was taking out their phones and trying to talk to it. Uh, and, you know, and <laughs> game center, the same thing, not, not this is uh forestall's problem, but uh, you know, a letterpress slamming game center gives game center a bad rep. Right. And it, what could have been like, Oh, I, I just got this great game. Like, it could have been a halo effect. Finally, uh, a game becomes popular in our little nerd circle that uses Game Center. And so we all think the Game Center is great because we love the game. That would have been a halo effect. We got the opposite. We like the game, but Game Center is falling down. Therefore, now Game Center has a bad rap in all our minds, right? Because it, 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 didn't, it didn't live up to the task. Well, Siri and voice recognition in Apple, there's a little bit of that you know, bad reputation going on there where, you know, late night talk show hosts doing jokes about Siri and some people just giving up on it, except for a very, for a very narrow band of tasks, like setting timers or reminders or stuff like that. Uh, and how much improvement of Siri can reverse that? How much improvement of game center can make us forget about that? Like even Twitter to this day, Twitter has been pretty stable and up and it, it stayed up during the election and, and stuff like that. And yeah, 300,000 tweets, um, more than 300,000 tweets a minute. Then yeah. no fail whale. Right. And but yet we all still remember the fail. Of course. Like like that reputation of Twitter as that service that couldn't stay up is still in all our minds, despite the fact that it's been so good for so long. Right. That they've solved that problem. It's very difficult to come back from that. So that's why I listed Siri in the list of possible, you know, demerits on uh, Forrestal's resume. All right. And I think we'll be the final topic for today is uh, talk about an article written by Contra with a K. Ah, Contra with a K. Not a C. Not, not a like C. video game. Not like Contra, the uh, two guys running around shooting. What country were they in? The Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, we know what country the Iran part of it is from. Where were the Contras? Anyone? Chat room? Nicaragua? 
Give them a second. MailChimp.com, easy email newsletters. MailChimp helps you design email newsletters. You can share them on social networks. You integrate with services, tons and tons of services. You can track the results so that when you send out a campaign, you say, oh, these people have received it. This many people have received it. This is the country that they're in. It's very cool stuff. You can customize your sign-up form to match the brand that you already have so that it integrates perfectly with your website. When you go to 5x5.tv slash newsletter, for example, it's going to look like the rest of the site. It's not like some weird, what if you just want to use their sign-up form on their site? You don't want to host a thing? Do it. It's fine. Put it in an iframe, whatever. It's your choice. You can even integrate all this stuff in your Facebook page, on a Twitter. You can collect sign-ups from an iPad or a laptop when you're at a trade show. You can even integrate it into your iOS app or your Android app like we do for the 5x5 app. When you sign up for the newsletter right there, that's using their code. They give you that code. You just embed it in your app. It's genius. There's never been a better time to try them out. You can send 12,000 emails a month to 2,000 subscribers for free forever. It's really great. And they've got tons and tons of really cool resources, uh, books that they've put out that are free. Great tools that will help you see exactly what the email that you're composing is going to look like in pretty much every single email reader that is known to mankind, humankind. You can learn more by going to MailChimp.com slash 5x5. Even just going to that URL will show your solidarity, your Syracusean solidarity. MailChimp.com slash 5x5. Please go check them out. Done. So it says it says it was Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Then Scott Newcomb, N-E-U-K-M, shames himself in front of the entire world by incorrectly typing in the Contra code, the Konami code. <laughs> did I don't know if anyone did anyone in the chat room catch it and and, uh, and shame him? Scott Duke Newcomb. Yeah, my, my problem with it with the Konami code is that the uh, Poland Storm song about Frogger. Uh, tends to intercept it in my mind when I map it. Do you know that one? No, I don't know that one. Find that for the show notes and throw it in there <laughs> in lieu of all the other things in there. It's not called, is it called the Frogger Storm? The Frogger Song? I bet if you just do Paul and Storm Frogger Song, you will find it. And we should put that in the show notes. Don't let me forget that. All right, but so about this article written by Contra with a K, who is mysterious. His description is... Uh, a veteran design and management surgeon perennially, perennially in search of complex problems to operate on. This is one of those few anonymous people on the web who I don't actually know who they are. Uh, but anyway, he... he nobody, know, nobody knows. Oh, sure, I'm sure everybody I mean knows. No, nobody knows. <laughs> no, people know. Oh, people know. Uh, he doesn't post frequently, but he, uh, when he does post, he's usually got something to say. Uh, what he, what the title of this article is, uh, is Apple's design problems aren't skeuomorphic. Talked last time about Forstall and the skeuomorphic design and not just skeuomorphism, but also uh, this sort of the, the graphical treatment of elements being more heavyweight than they used to be. And the possibility that since, you know, reportedly Steve Jobs was heavily into that kind of design and so was Forstall and Jobs is gone. And then Forstall was the one in charge of iOS. It seems like he was uh, heavily in favor of it too. Most of the people out in the tech world don't like it as much and wish there was less of it and wish that it would go away. And so there was lots of skeuomorphism flat, uh, blowback of saying, finally, yeah, Forstall will be gone. And in theory, uh, all this bad stuff we don't like will go away and Johnny Apple will save us all. And Contra's article is like that what was wrong, what's wrong with Apple's, he's mostly focusing on iOS here, but you know, in general, what's wrong with Apple's software user interface is not that they're all skeuomorphic. The problems are deeper than that. Uh, 
so he lists a couple of, of things here. Like uh, these may seem like small things, but I'm going to focus on one of them in a bit. But he lists. Uh, well, here's the one I'm going to focus on. On the, on the notif- notification center, yeah. uh, there are lots of jailbreak hacks that make it so when you swipe down with your thumb in notification center, you don't just see your notifications. You also see a small set of other items that you want quick access to. Mm-hmm. And so Contra says six items that drain mobile battery devices, GPS, Wi-Fi, cell radio, Bluetooth, uh, and screen brightness still require laborious multiple clicks in multiple places, not immediately obvious to non-savvy users to turn on and off without any simple thematic or geofence grouping. Right. So anyone who has a mobile iOS device and uses it when they travel or just, 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 you know, it's like, I want to turn GPS off because I don't need it now. I want to turn cellular data off because I don't need it now. I want to turn Bluetooth off because I almost never use it. I want to turn the screen brightness up, screen brightness down. And doing all those things with a non-jailbreak iPhone requires going into the settings app and filling around with stuff. And, it's you know, you're like, boy, if you know, it's one of the reasons that people jailbreak. Like, I know there's jailbreak stuff where I just swipe my thumb down from the top of the screen and I get direct access to turning Bluetooth on and off. But the flip side of that is like people saying, how often do you really turn Bluetooth on and off? Why are you always turning Wi-Fi on and off? Well, if you just leave everything on, the OS will manage the battery for you. You don't have to do it or whatever. Uh, but in practice, jailbreakers and Android are kind of like the things I talked about before, that, you know, the paths in the grass. Like, if you, don't, if you don't constrain people, if you give people a green field to do whatever they want, like jailbreak people or what, like Android people, if some, you know, trends become clear, paths start getting worn into the grass from everybody going and everyone wanting to have a thing to turn Bluetooth on and off and turn Wi-Fi on and off. And maybe, you know, maybe they're not right. Maybe they shouldn't be doing that. Maybe the solution is to have the OS manage it better. Uh, but they're clearly voting with their feet that this is something uh, that they want. Uh, and that has nothing to do with skeuomorphism. Uh, Contralist iCloud desktop integration and file sharing among Apple devices. We all know what a pain that is of like, things get into iCloud and you edit a text document with text edit, but it's not visible on your phone at all. Cause there's no, doc, there's no application from Apple or otherwise that reads the iCloud sandbox for text edit. And how do you share among applications to have multiple applications working on the same document? Uh, he says the iWork suite is begging to be updated. Preview text edit and contacts desperately in need of, of UI overhauls. He also says that he says core functionalities like the dictionary and the iOS keyboard layout and auto correction are not best of breed. I don't, I don't know because I don't spend enough time with other things, but apparently those things are better on other platforms. I'll take his word for it there. Uh, the iOS organization of just using folders, like we're lucky we even get folders. First, it's just a grid of icons. Then, okay, now you can get a grid of icons nested with a subgrid of icons. Uh, navigating among apps, uh, not as not as uh, fancy or as interesting as it was on like things like WebOS or whatever. Uh, now, this may sound like just an individual list of one person's peeves about like how iOS isn't the same as Android. And, and you may be thinking, I like all of Apple's decisions here. All these things that, that people want are actually bad things. And Apple is uh, correct to hold the line on them. Uh, I'll have more on that in a bit. But first, I want to get back to the notion from uh, last show about Forrestal is that like as in all things, we don't know how many of the things from this list or from any other list are a you know, that Forrestal is to blame for just because he's the guy who got forced out doesn't mean that everything you don't like was his doing. And now that he's gone, uh, it will change. And I actually got right before the show, one completely anonymous tidbit, uh, from somebody who heard this directly from Forrestal's mouth. So it's, I guess this is what secondhand information. Well, if you really trust the person, 
then yeah. oh yeah no i don't i don't know I, this is the anonymous tipster i don't know them and they even if they're 100 percent accurate which i think they are because like there's no upside to lying about this they're just conveying something that forestall said to them okay uh, and here's what directly directly to them yes directly. okay all right right so it's, it's secondhand right like yeah, second we, we are saying it i don't know how the, the hands go anyway forestall said it to this person's ears this person said it to me and here it is uh he says that uh Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive didn't want a home button on the iPhone. And Forrestal had to fight them for months before they finally decided to have a home button. All right. And this source says, assuming this is true, and he says it certainly rings true knowing what we know about Ives and, and Jobs. Like, doesn't that sound like something that Ives and Jobs want? No, no buttons at all. Just a screen. It's pure. It's just the screen. Like, that totally sounds like something that fits in with their personality. But anyway, uh, it says, assuming that Forrestal's story is true, uh, an iPhone created at a time... Uh, with Ive in charge might not have been the device. It might have been a device without a, a, phone, a home button on it, right? Now, you know, it, I think we all agree at this point that having that one button, like it's been touted by many people who like contemplate the design of iOS and like, no, you don't understand. Like it's not, you know, when there were rumors of getting rid of the home button, like you don't understand the, the home button is genius. Having the one button is a genius because almost everything has to be on the screen but there has to be a non-screen escape hatch for like, I don't know what's going on. Just forget about this stuff and rescue me. And that's the physical home button. And despite the fact that like it's not mechanically hooked up to anything, it's a software controlled button. If your thing freezes, the home button does nothing anyway or whatever. It's reassuring to people to have a physical button. Uh, it could be that Ives and Jobs, if the story's accurate, were right. And an iPhone without the home button would have worked better. But all of us are looking at what we do have. And it's very difficult for anyone who's an iOS aficionado not to come down the side of saying, you know, that home button was one of the best decisions they ever made. So I don't know how listeners feel about this. I think the home button was a good idea, but there is some aspect of it of like not being able to envision how it would work without the home button. But, you know, if this story is accurate. Here's yet another example where Forstall, who none of us probably know personally, you know, is doing something that most people would agree was a good thing. Right. We so he, about he's done time. at least one good thing in his tenure at Apple. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, that's the meta point is we don't know which things forced all like, you know, if you just want to say all the bad things, he's responsible for those. Well, you don't know how you don't know what he did at all. None of us know. He might have done all 100 percent good things or all 100 percent bad things or a 50 50 mix. We don't know. We just know he was in charge. And so, like, regardless of whether he's directly responsible for them, you get some responsibility like the buck stops here. If you don't like iOS 6 and you want to blame one person, you could blame the CEO of Apple and you can blame Forrestal because he was in charge of it. Right. So that. That is legitimate, but on an individual basis, you don't know. So here's yet another example of a story. And the last one from last week was choosing OS 10 instead of like Linux or something for their phone OS. And I think that one, I can much more heavily defend that as being the right move in retrospect, right? Uh, the home button, I can go either way on, but I'm mostly of the opinion that that was a good call. And so if he was forced levels behind that, that's another example for all the people out there who think the forced all just did terrible things. Like, like I said in the last show, history is written by the winners, and that means that all the stories you see out of Apple and stuff about what a, what a ter- all these terrible things that Forrestal did. Well, of course, it's it's the entirety of the company that fired him versus him, who's basically probably being quiet and probably has to be quiet. Uh, so who knows when we'll know the real story. But I would say to everybody, regardless of personality issues and other stuff like that, but who knows? Uh, don't be so quick to decide that Forrestal is responsible for all this, this bad stuff. All right. So, you know, all of that is to say we don't know that things will get any better. You know, all the, the things that, that, you know, Contra is talking about here, not just skeuomorphism, but all the things that he's complaining about. We don't know that any of those things will be better now that Forrestal is gone. 
one thing I think we can be confident about is that things will be different because different people are in charge. Like it would be shocking to me if with this huge reshuffle of like, oh, now Federighi's in charge of iOS and OS 10, and now Ive is in charge of in charge of user interface. The things didn't change. Like we don't know whether they're going to get better or for worse, but we I, I do think they're going to change. Like how could they not change, right? Unless there was some other, you know. If Steve Jobs was still in charge, I can imagine them not changing because he sort of exerted his taste on the entire company. But Tim Cook doesn't seem to do that. So I would think with this executive reshuffling, things uh, are going to change. Now, getting back to the, the you know, easy way to turn on and off Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and cell data and stuff like that. Uh, if I had to pick one word to describe Apple's handling of the evolution of iOS, it would probably be intransigence. Like they have shown over the years of, of, especially the later years, a general unwillingness to, to bend to these, to, to the will of things that everyone thinks they're going to have. You got to have flash on this thing. Uh, Apple says, no, actually we don't have to have flash. And no matter how much you complain over how many revisions, no matter how many news stories come out and say, the iPhone's great, except if only it ran flash, we're just not going to do it. Right. Uh, whether it was forestall or not, Behind that, the dynamic has been that users and developers like clamor for something and Apple mostly just says no and sticks to its guns and holds firm. So the the dynamic in this relationship is Apple is the stern adult that knows best. And we are out there going and, you know, who the we is. We is just like consumers, tech pundits, uh, gadget reviewers saying, Apple, you got to do this. Apple, you got to do that. Apple, you do that. And Apple just says, calm down. We know what we're doing. We're not going to do that. Uh, the App Store policies are, are another example where everyone was screaming about what the App Store policy should be and how they're going to kill everything or whatever. And what you get from Apple has been, we're just, we're staying the course here. Minor adjustments, true. Some minor backpedaling, but for the most part, it's been, you know, we know best. We're, we're going to stick with what we're doing. Same thing with the, the UI simplicity. Like, I know you want all these fancy features. I know you want to have gadgets on your home screen and all these sort of things that Android has or whatever, we're just saying a grid of icons is the way to do and trust us long-term, this is the right thing to do. And again, this this intransigence is, is frequently cited by Apple fans as, boy, isn't Apple great? See how they are able to hold strong in the face of demands for features that you might think you want, but if you keep going that direction, eventually you'll end up with a big complicated phone that no one likes and that, you know, that they're doing the right thing, right? Uh, you know, and another example of, of this intransigence is the spread of fanciful interfaces and skeuomorphic interfaces and things with like fake materials and, you know, just both of those aspects, both in terms of actual skeuomorphism where you're trying to have a knob on the computer screen because people know what knobs are, but you don't actually need knobs anymore on a slider would be better. And just in terms of it works just like a regular application. It's got buttons and scrollable regions. Only the buttons look like they're made out of leather for no reason, like a very heavyweight visual. That thing is another example of something when Apple started doing it, we all went, what are you doing, Apple? This is a big mess. Like, I don't like it. It's ugly. It doesn't make sense. I learned a new world called skeuomorphism, and that proves that you're bad. And, you know, like, we all just, like, that's another, yet another example of a place we think Apple is going wrong. Uh, in this case, I think there is more weight behind it because it's not just that we want what we want. I want my gadgets. I want something fancier. You know, I think folders exist at all because of people complaining about things. And even that is pretty simple. You know, I want my easy way to turn Bluetooth on and off. They're holding the line on those, and those are more easily supportable than the case where they they you know use these make these fanciful fanciful whimsical and sometimes skewmark interfaces because those tend to those interfaces tend to happen at the you know to the detriment of functionality and usability. Like it's not like you know they're holding fast and they haven't been proven right. So a great example of this is the podcast app, 
the it's just called podcasts i think podcasts little, yeah yeah with a purple icon yep beautiful beautiful that. purple icon. yeah and it's got like it's the, not the, blue right the reel-to-reel tape thing in there, which is, is not really skeuomorphic because it's really just, you know, eye candy. You don't really manipulate it with your fingers. Who knows? Maybe you can. But, like, it's, you know, it's it's a perfect example of this type of design. And and it, in typical Apple fashion, they're like, you know, oh, we like podcasts. We're sticking with it. Like, this is what we, you know, that's like the culmination of everything they've done. Leather address book. Yep, we love that. We're sticking with it. Everything looks like it's made out of plastic and stuff like that. Oh, we love that too. We're doing that. It's got to have a wood title bar on OS 10. It's, you know, we're sticking with like they have not in fact they've doubled down like from line to mountain line that's just is just spread even farther and farther, right? And so again, they're just they're sticking to their guns and then podcast app is like, look, see this is just, you know, what how could it have been any different when podcasts come out? What were you picturing in your head? At this point we're like it's going to be like some disembodied microphone or a reel to reel. Like, of course it has to be, of course. Right. And the, the proof is in the pudding. Go look at the reviews on the podcast app on the app store. It's got two stars. This is a, 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 an application written by, a, a, you know, the biggest company in the world with supposedly the most talented engineers. And it just gets, it just gets slammed. It gets trashed. Right. It's got uh, out of 15,000 total ratings, about 10,000 of them are one star. Like people don't like it. They don't, it doesn't work well. It doesn't look good. It's hard to use. It, you know, it has so many bad things about it. Every, and it's not just because it looks like a tape recorder. Because 10,000 people out of 15,000 would not give it one star for looking like a tape recorder. If anything, if this thing worked great and was fun to use and, you know, had, was good in all aspects, nobody cares that it's skeuomorphic or anything like that. If it's a fun, usable, good, bug-free application, fine. But as, you know, Contra points out in his article, they're not just falling down in some esoteric, kind of philosophical way that we disagree with. They're just making bad apps. It's a bad application. It's not good. People don't like it. You know, people are deleting it off their phone because it's like downloading podcasts in the background and burning through their cellular data things. Like, I, I think I deleted off one of my devices so far. I haven't deleted off all of them, but I don't use it. That That's definitely true. And and it's not just like the first version was bad and they fixed it. If you look at the current version, the rating is still two stars. And out of the, the current version has 710 ratings and 480 of those are one star. Uh, so this is a case where, you know, this dynamic between us complaining and Apple not doing anything has taken a turn for the worse because for the first time, Apple is like unquestionably not in the right. Like it's not a matter of opinion. They're making bad software, software that people don't like, software that doesn't work right. And, you know, it's not because it looks like a tape recorder. They're just, you know, they're just doing the wrong thing. And you have to think that the development time spent on podcasts, some portion of it had to be spent making that stupid tape recorder stuff work. And that's time that could have been spent making an actual good application or some portion of the design process was short circuited by someone deciding, Ooh, I know let's make it a real three tape recorder. And then out the window go tons and tons of possible interfaces that would have been more friendly or easier to use. Well, I, talk, uh, I had a phone call with the developer shortly after it came out and I asked him, I asked him about some of this and, and the way that the way that it was described to me was that the, there was one person who was in charge of doing the user interface design stuff. And there was another person who was in charge of writing the code. And of course they worked as a team and they collaborated. I, I don't know how much, but my impression, my strong impression was the two of them created the app and they, they worked hard on it. They had a vision for it. They did it. They were supported and their choices were supported. But the, the distinct impression I got was not, from on, you know, from on high saying, this is how this app is going to work. It was more like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to build a cool app. And they built it and they, they got it out there. And my understanding, again, I could be wrong, 
was that this was like a two-person team who built this app together. I don't think it's a top-down thing where they're forcing you know their developers to make it like this. It's it's the opposite. It's that Apple had created an environment where the type of applications they give a thumbs up to are applications like this. Like, for example, can you imagine uh, developers either working for Apple or not making an application that looks and behaves like this, like, you know, in classic Mac OS, like, you know, if you were inside Apple and it was your job to make, I can't think of a classic Mac application. It's your job to make like uh, the keychain manager. Keychain existed on classic Mac OS and there was an application where you messed with it. And they decided to make it look like something like with like a, a padlock animation and a key thing and like a, a metaphor that uses, you know, physical keys and stuff like that. If you went to your superiors as a two person development team and said, we're thinking of making this, they'd be like, what? No, use a scrolling table view with sortable column. Like, that's not how you make a Mac application, let alone like one officially from Apple. Right. It's not a game. Right. This is the keychain application. Right. Now, uh, you know, a counter example there from the classic Mac OS days is the CD player. Remember that Apple CD player? Yes. That yes. was one of the first hints of like, those guys said, we want to make it look kind of like an 80s Sony <laughs> plastic thing. Can we do that? And they're like, nah, CD player, it's kind of okay. But the CD player also, you know, kind of worked okay. There's like a balance between those things. As you get more fanciful getting into games where the UI can look like anything, there's a balance. So keychain shouldn't look like that. CD player can look, it's mostly like a regular UI, but it looks a little bit different. But it certainly was, you know, podcast is way on the other side of it. And as it turns out, unlike something like GarageBand, podcast application has utilitarian functions that need to be fulfilled. And this one is over the line. And it's not the people's fault for proposing and wanting to do that. It's Apple's fault for for creating an environment where this type of application is given a thumbs up, like that it fits perfectly in. It's not an aberration. It's not like those are the crazy guys who made the Apple CD music player thing, Apple CD audio player, whatever it's called. They're not an aberration. They are in the mainstream. This is how Apple does development now. And that's what we're talking about. Not, not so much to pick on these particular people doing this one application but that this is how apple has decided this is what software development is for ios and the mac you make these crazy high concept very art heavy things uh and if it looks awesome and it and it demos well on a stage and, and, and the graphics of these things are great you can't complain that that's not a good looking real-to-real thing but it's just like that's not what what's important about an application uh, you know that's that's what contra is getting at in his article here uh he has this strangely worded uh section at the bottom i don't know if this is passive voice or just flipping around of object and subject but anyway it says a serious mistake would be to hide many of these behavioral functional experiential software problems under a more attractive aesthetically unifying display layer so this is like what would johnny ive do to fix everything right and he says such as a more modern less cheesy looking game center game center redesign that doesn't have a social layer so i've complained myself about game center how it's insulting the gamers and gross looking and just terrible and everything like that so johnny ive swoops in and he says, I'm going to fix this. And he makes Game Center not look like green felt and, and all that stuff or whatever. But he hasn't actually fixed it because one of the, you know, that's surface level. What's, you know, what's really wrong with Game Center? Well, it's not as good as Xbox Live. It's not as good as like Steam or, you know, any of the other similar services that provide similar functions. Just functionally, like where's the social layer? Well, how, how easy it is to find and add friends and, and you know, do matches and find out what they're doing, compare achievements, stuff like that. You know, uh, it's not just how the thing looks. Uh and aesthetically unified iTunes without appreciably better content discovery. What's wrong with iTunes? It's not just that it's ugly and buggy and stuff like that, but it should be easier to find stuff that you like, right? A 
a Siri app without the background linen, but still lacking much deeper semantic integration with the rest of iOS, right? Is what's wrong with Siri that stupid linen background? No, we just talked about it. There's many things that are wrong with Siri that have nothing to do with how it looks and whether that little metal button looks there and whether there's linen behind everything. Uh, a Maps app without the ungainly, surreal visual artifacts, but still missing a robust search layer underneath. You know, what's wrong with Maps is not the ugly graphics and the weird 3D flyover. Like, that's all gravy. We're willing to accept that. It's the data that's bad. Uh, an iBooks app without the wooden shelves or inner spine shadow, but still with subpar typography, anemic hyphenation, and justification. iBooks, I complained about it looking like a book. It's stupid. The wooden shelves seem like they're pointless or whatever. But that's not what's wrong with iBooks. It's not a good book reader. It doesn't, you know, do hyphenation well. You can't do floating images. It's like, you know, the, the store experience and how you update things. We had the whole show complaining about iBooks stuff. It's not like people will focus on the, the it looking like a book and i think that is a problem and they've addressed it by having non-book looking modes or whatever but there's much deeper things wrong that johnny ive or anyone else can't fix by putting a new coat of paint on things or he ends with a podcast app without the tape deck skeuomorphism but with all the same navigational opaqueness why is podcast so difficult to use you can't tell where you are and you're in catalog and find and you know your list of things like it's difficult to find where you are ignoring the, the tape deck thing entirely there are deeper things wrong uh, so he's uh, the conclusion here at the end. In the end, what's wrong with iOS isn't the dark linen behind the app icons at the bottom of the screen, but the fact that iOS ought to have much better inter-application management and navigation than users fiddling with tiny icons. I'm fairly sure most Apple users would gladly continue to use what, what, what are supposed to be skewomorphically challenged calendar and notebook apps for a thousand years if Apple could only solve more, far more vexing problem, software problems of Apple ID unification when using iTunes, the App Store, and the performance and reliability of the same. Like, the... The, the point of this article is that there are much, much deeper problems than what these things look like in the metaphors they use, even though it's not, you know, it's not saying those things aren't problems. In many cases, those things are problems. And in many cases, those decisions cause other problems. But the problems are much deeper and they go all the way down the software stack, all the way through the wires, into the server, all the way to the company policies, just, you know, everything. Uh, so Johnny Ive does have his work cut out for him. And to, I'm not saying he doesn't he doesn't understand this, like you're giving something that, you know, you're telling Johnny Ive something he doesn't already know. I think he understands how deep usability goes and how it's not just a coat of paint. Like, you know, he certainly has shown that he understands that with hardware, right? Uh, but people out there thinking if iOS 7 comes out and linen texture is gone and it looks nicer, it's like, oh, Johnny Ive saved us all. No, I don't think he will have unless he's addressed all these other problems or, you know, Federighi combination of him and Federighi have addressed these other problems and maybe maybe this intransigence will start you know fading where it's like finally is iOS freed to evolve again to say we want to you know not just do a toe dip into data sharing but like let's solve the data sharing problem once and for all and let's be more bold with what springboard looks like like adding folders was like a concession and it's not like a great concession it's like what can we do within the current metaphor it still kind of fits with it, but gives people what they want. Like, is there something beyond Springboard? Someone should be thinking or working about that. When the iPad came out, I remember thinking like, well, it's not just going to be a grid of icons because a, a tablet interface require, you know, you have more space. A, a different metaphor would be appropriate. And they just stuck with Springboard the way it was, which works. It's not terrible. It's better than doing something that's bad. But I still feel like there's something beyond the grid of icons they can go to. And again, as people will say, like, you don't understand Apple is right here. Sticking with the simple grid icons is what's genius about it. You have to, like, it has to be this simple. Like, in many areas, Apple is right, and I do applaud them for holding fast, but things do need to evolve, and Apple does need to recognize the difference between uh, when it's holding fast in a case where it turns out to be right and when it's holding fast in a case where it turns out to be wrong. 
And on the user interface stuff in the past two versions of both uh, Mac OS X and iOS, I think they've been they've conclusively proven themselves to be on the wrong track in, track in terms of how to design applications, both the look and feel and how they work to make users happy and to make people happy with those applications. What do you think? Well, this is, a, this is one of those things where when you look at the history of the way that people have felt about this and the vocal people who are like Contra, you really don't know who he is? I really don't. I don't think anyone knows. You know, he, one of the points that I think that he's making here, that's one of the, you know, one of the, the points a lot of people have been trying to make is we want to see changes. You know what I'm saying? And that's part of why I think people get upset about this is the changes that we know are coming are not always the ones that we're hoping for. We want to see progress, not changes. Yeah, okay. That's a better way to say progress. But we don't want to to see stagnation. Yes. There's a balance between not giving in to every stupid user whim and ending up with something that looks like Windows with stickers all over it and sticking with something past its expiration date uh, and then the worst <laughs> well, so, is, but who's going to determine what that expiration date really is well i mean that's 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 what we pay apple for right that's that that's their job to you know they, up until like up until maybe lion and mountain lion mac os 10 both evolved and changed you know tremendously in big dramatic ways but pretty much universally in positive ways and only with lion and mountain lion have things come in that the initial impression of them was that they were off-putting or, you know, that we didn't like them. It doesn't mean that they're wrong, but, like, then it was it was a change from, like, you know, every version had something for someone to complain about or their pet feature didn't get done. Right. But in general, we all felt like we were moving in a positive direction. And here's this thing that goes in an unexpected direction. And an unexpected direction can be amazing, like when you come up with a phone with no buttons on it. Like, that was unexpected, and we people were uncomfortable with it, and it seemed like it was a terrible idea. But it turned out not to be. Yeah. Well, this trend with, you know, changing their applications like this, like in the beginning, you're like, oh, it could be cool, but I'm kind of uncomfortable with it. But let me just keep an open mind. But they just to keep executing on this thing. And like the, the worst part is that it works great in some contexts. Like GarageBand, which is practically, it's not, I'm not going to say it's a game, like it'll make Merlin mad. Like it is amazing, <laughs> par- amazingly powerful application. But like the skeuomorphism there actually serves a role because the people who are able to use this, this application to do anything worth a damn, probably at this point in history, are familiar with the devices that they're they're mimicking. Maybe there's kids growing up and they've never seen like a wah pedal and they don't know why this thing looks like a little box with uh, with knobs on it and they don't understand what it's emulating or whatever. But like that, I feel like a creative application has more leeway to do that type of thing. But uh, GarageBand on the Mac, where it's a multi-track audio editor, maybe it doesn't need the wood title bar. Like, but we didn't really mind that much. But they just keep, they keep going down this path despite all of the negative signals from from users and everything that maybe it's you shouldn't paint everything with the same brush and maybe it's not the way to go and losing sight of the things that used to be on track with like getting blinded by the incredible high quality of the visuals they have in these applications right because the, their pictures are pretty like i mean you know when apple give apple credit when they do a skeuomorphic application where they make something out of uh, fake real world materials they look really really good even if you think they're ugly you have to admit they're well rendered and especially retina resolution and that can blind you to what is actually wrong with this application right and what's actually wrong with it is if you did the, you know, uh, wireframe information architecture diagram, it, it would be, you know, it's too cumbersome to go from here to there or that's, you know, too much of a pain or whatever. So all this is all mixed up into one kind of feeling of user interface malaise, right? Mm. Like 
the visual malaise of like, it's just too heavyweight and it's hurting my eyes. And like windows eight is a breath of fresh air. Right. And the other malaise of like, even if I just ignore the visuals, I don't like this application because I can't get it to work and do what I want it to do. Right. You're upset. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that I'm hopeful. Like I, because I'm, I haven't been totally against this stuff. If you read my line to mountain line reviews, like, you know, I, I, it's a great pains to point out that like, it could be that, you know, a lot of the feeling against like the leather calendar and stuff is like, does it make it a worse calendar application? Is this what the problem is? Is it the leather or the stitching? I'm like, people don't like it because they think it's ugly. And that's, that's a legitimate thing. Using something ugly is not fun, but like the real problems with the calendar application were like that, it, you know, didn't have the features that we wanted. It was cumbersome to use or, and you know, I did hammer on the skeuomorphism as like, if you're going to do that, that's not helping if you're making visual promises, you know, uh, these graphics are, are, you know, writing checks, this interface can't cache. The graphics say one thing, the interface says, no, sorry, right? And they're closer to that balance than iOS, but, you know, it's... I, I was mostly on board with this thing, but now I feel like uh, we've done, we've run the experiment, and this school of design has its limits, and Apple has crossed, has, Apple has crossed over them, and it needs to, it needs to regroup and pull it back and focus uh, less on the visuals and more on what the things actually do. And maybe that means you get to keep these visuals. Fine. Keep the cool appearances and stuff, but just, you know, regroup and concentrate on making it also like if I took this application, and removed all of the textures and just made it wireframes, would it still be an awesome application? Like a, a recent example, letterpress that basically is that application. Yeah. But that's a very, water, that's a very right? special case. I mean, how many apps are going to be like that where they're going to be awesome if you removed everything 50%. Well, think of mail mail is, basically it's like an ios wireframe yeah. right like it's just it's just the, the simplest possible controls and you know if it's fast and responsive especially in the early days when this was the only you know people liked mail like now maybe people are grumpy because it's not quite as feature rich as they want it to be but really any great application you should be able to completely remove the fancy visuals and just keep it in wireframes and it should still be useful and pleasing to use maybe not doesn't delight people as much because you don't get like a cool shredding animation or something even letterpress makes things explode when you remove the games and stuff like that yeah like that's that's icing. That's like progressive enhancement, but it's just got to be a solid, you know, solid user interface design in terms of like, you know, uh, I don't know if its law applies to touch things, but like touch target size, location, obviousness, navigational model, mental model, like that's all got to work. And then you make it look awesome. On top of that, you can't start from the other direction. You know, I, just to kind of take this off uh, on a tangent a little bit. I assume that because, you know, we can neither confirm nor deny that you had anything to do with voting this year. But if you were watching any of the results on television after uh, after voting and as it was closing and things like that, they have on, on and NBC was especially bad for this. You know, when NBC would go to commercial, you'd have to an unfortunate task of switching over to CNN, which is worse. You they, they would play very dramatic music in the background especially CNN in the background the whole time the whole while they're talking while they're talking about poll results they would have the picture of Obama come up and it would have like a little highlight move across the square box around him framing his picture and it would flip out and roll out and there'd be little like explosions and fading things in and fading things who needs that garbage and that to me that's exactly what's going on with these apps like 
just show you know what i would have liked a screen that just showed on on here's a picture here's a picture of the other dude here's information about the dude that's all that i would need to see i don't need to see little flyovers and callouts and weird little things like that it's all extra it's all crazy stuff i mean it's bad enough that we have little scrollers that are going across the bottom of the screen you know i i don't need a lens flare happening in real time over a picture of a candidate like it's it's not necessary having a you know, it's almost like ha- like when you watch a, a TV show from the 70s or 80s and it's got a laugh track on it. And it's painfully obvious that it was a laugh track and not done in front of a studio audience. This is the laugh track of the apps that we have today. These things. And I hope at some point people realize that none of this garbage is really necessary. Just give us an app. Now, fine. You pointed out games like games. Great. Do cool stuff with a game because it's a game and usually it's a full screen interface like you've identified. But, you know, just stay. Why? Why, why do companies feel like they need to do this stuff? Do, are there people out there who like who think it's cool? I think there are. I think there are people like, wow, did you see the interface? It looks, dude, it looks just like paper. It looks just like paper. Like there are people who love that, John. Well, there's some room for that, I think, like, you know, artistic applications or even just like the metal dock, which I actually think I'm staring at it now. I'm a mountain lion on I'm a Mac Pro here. And I, uh, as I said in my review, I was going to try to keep this like metal slanty dock thing. And I kept it because I think it looks I think it look, looks nice. Like I would like to own an actual physical thing that was made of this cool, shiny metal thing. Uh, there's room for that. Like that is like icing on the cake. You know, I, I don't think everything needs to be completely plain, even straightforward applications uh can make you feel better about using them because it's like an emotional experience make you feel better to click i mean even just the os changing the buttons to be like aqua colored and then making them flat or whatever like you want things to look cool and nice or whatever but never to the detriment it's always got to be an enhancement never to the detriment and never to be in a distraction and speaking of the, the sound background thing two things in that first it reminded me of closer to home i don't know if you've ever listened to these and i think you tried to do this like once i don't remember but you know the podcast thing where there's light background music, kind of like the stuff you just imitated yeah. throughout the entire podcast. Or radio does it sometimes too. Howard Stern used to do it. No drive me crazy. Like Howard, you do not need that music behind you. Yeah. But either during the ads, he would do it sometimes. Like, well, I don't know what that is. Is there a term term of art for that background? I, I'm sure there stuff? is. I, I admittedly, I don't know that. Did you ever do that? I, thought, I have this recollection. I did it one time once. as a, as a joke on Marco's show after he had done his. He did his spot on. Howard Stern's show and had it had the music behind it and as a joke I said oh we should we should do that on this show we should have you know music behind the ad reads during the spot and uh, and talk over it. and 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 so put it on there as a joke for that show and boy you should have seen the emails <laughs> and tweets I got from people who didn't know that it was a joke the, you know there there was like one guy who's like I really like it it sounded cool and then everybody else was like if you do this again, I'm unsubscribing from every show and I will never listen to any of these people again. And I need to listen to these people. So please don't do it or I'll kill you. Like, I mean, almost death threat kind of thing. It was really a joke. It was just a joke. Yeah. High Indian says it's wallpaper music and it always bothers me as well. So that's like, they they do that on TV as well, you know, uh, and also like with the lens flare. Yeah. Also has a sound like the swooping sound. Yeah. 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 That is, that's, awful in, in many different ways and the second thing about background music is that this is the reason that television stations do it uh the place where background music is used to good effect in an appropriate context uh but in the same exact way is in boss fights in video games yeah they have 
more dramatic, intense, higher-paced music. But that makes sense. It's a game. Because it, it makes you like, oh my God, oh my God, it's the boss, right? Uh, and <laughs> it's, 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 it's manipulation. It's, it's manipulating you yeah. into being more nervous more and scared. And under, like, because, you know, if you were actually fighting a gigantic, you know, spider thing and all you have was a sword, you would be scared. And like, the game wants to convey that emotional experience. Same thing with movies, you know, movie soundtrack. But in particular, boss fights, because... Uh, it's it's an experience that you control some aspect of. So the when I play video games with my son, frequently he gets freaked out on a boss and he just wants to continue with the game. So has me beat the boss or he keeps dying or whatever. And he's not he doesn't keep dying because it's too hard for him to do. The bosses aren't actually harder than the rest of the game, right? He'll, you know, go through the mini bosses and stuff like that. It's that he gets psyched out by the music, right? And so this is this is a a, a life hack, as Merlin would say, for any <laughs> young yeah, children out there that. who are <laughs> I get young kids know this. Gamers know this. Anyone, I think anyone who's been a gamer for any period of time knows this. Maybe young people don't. If you're having trouble on a boss fight, one of the things that you can do is just mute the mute TV. Mute the TV. There All of a sudden, sound, you've like yeah. it decreased the uh, the difficulty by a whole level. Right. Now, there may be sound cues that you need to actually beat the boss. In that case, you've got problems. But if you just put it on mute, and lowering the volume kind of helps, but not really. But just put it on mute. Suddenly, it's like, oh. I can relax do, now. All I need to do is wait for his attack, move to the left, take out this thing, shoot him with an arrow, move to the right, roll here and do that and repeat it three times and he's dead. And it's, it becomes like so easy. And by the way, the second thing, if you're having trouble with boss fights in the modern age, the second thing you can do, especially if it's an actual difficult boss fight that is physically difficult to control and you're not just getting psyched out, uh, go find a YouTube video of someone beating the boss. Just watching some, not that you don't know what to do. Like once you know what to do, we just can't execute it. Like I know you got to do these things. I just can't execute. It's too hard for me. Watch a video of someone else doing it. You would think, well, what difference does that make? I know this guy can do it. I, we both know what to do. You both got yeah, I know you have to do this thing. I just can't physically do it. It's just too hard. Just watching someone else do it will subconsciously or perhaps consciously convince you that it is possible to beat this boss. And just by watching someone else do it, it becomes like, oh, this is a thing that can happen. I see human beings can do this. Assuming it's not an emulator. Don't watch emulator videos. You'll, you'll feel bad about yourself. Uh, Watch someone else do it and then go off and do it on your own. Uh, so anyway, like the the music thing, that emotional manipulation, there's the dark side and the light side to that. The dark side is the political thing of like, dun, 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 be nervous about whatever it is we're trying right. to tell you. Storm is coming. Storm of the century. Your children could be poisoned. <laughs> election results, whatever it is. Right. right. Uh, and the positive side of that is if you're watching a movie, you want to get into it. If you're playing a video game, like it's part of it. You want to get into it. You want to get that feeling, that thrill. Uh, and in software all of these tools this amazing uh, you know ability to make beautiful graphics and everything can be used for good and and for evil unintentional evil like the good is you have an amazing application that works great and if it was just black and white wireframes people would use and enjoy this application and love it and become dedicated to it because it's solid it's reliable the functionality you've implemented is great and now take your amazing application let's say it's an art application and make it look like a piece of parchment paper and make the tools look like beautiful real world art tools that artists who use this program are going to be familiar with. They will love the program even more as long as it's also an awesome program on top of all these visual enhancements. Uh, and using it for evil unintentionally is getting too concentrating too much on making this paintbrush tool graphic look like your favorite real life sable paintbrush. Uh, but the rest of your application stinks. And if you took away the paintbrush graphic, you wouldn't be able to sell it for two cents. God, this was supposed to be. I didn't. I didn't clear any short show, but I, had, I, I had hopes. But yeah, I, think we're done. I, I will tease the the topic I have for next week, which, if you were to look at my show notes, you would see there's a million links for it. Is the story about uh, 
Apple said to be exploring switch from in, uh, from uh, Intel for the Mac uh, Business Week story. The idea of Apple ditching Intel and going with ARM instead. I have a lot to say about that. Oh, cool. We'll save it for next week unless something else preempts it. 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 93 has all the links for this episode that John has put together for you. You can follow John on Twitter at Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, no Z, Syracusa. He is also Syracusa on alpha.app.net and Syracusa on Tentis. <laughs> and I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, Dan on Alpha. I think Dan Benjamin on Tentis, I guess. And uh, if you would like to, you can send us feedback about the show by going to 5x5.tv slash contact. Or you can pick hypercritical from the list and send the email. John promises he will read it. He may not reply. He may even talk about it on the show. And, uh, and that's it. What else you got, John? I think that's all. All right. Well, thank you. We'll be back next week. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thanks to all the jackals in the chat room. See you next week. Bye. Bye.